Hey everybody, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. On this episode, we are discussing Inside Out from 2015. We do recommend watching the movie. It usually makes the conversation more interesting to listen to. So Mike, what is Inside Out about? Oh, hey there. It's me, Sadness. Welcome to John's Brain. I'll be your emotional captain today as we go on our somber walk around my favorite place, the gray concrete hellhole that is New York. Here's to hoping we get my favorite weather, cold rain. Now, just FYI, we should expect a few outbursts, a moment where fear takes over because I discover that Avatar 2 got pushed back another 30 years. Or disgust if I see someone enjoying Mumford and Sons. Definitely anger if anyone defames that stupid submarine movie that I love. And even maybe joy if somebody, some poor soul, by chance, mentions a Nintendo fighting game from 50 years ago, and I get to talk at them for a few dozen hours. But don't worry. If things get sideways, we could always turn to my good old imaginary friend, Mike Overstreet, to talk over and analyze and say some stupid stuff about some silly kids movie for a few hours. That should help guide me back to the morose emptiness, which is the state that I prefer to exist within. Anywho, I'll see you next time, and I hope you have a dreary, wet sock kind of a day. Bye. Okay, real quick, two things. One, I felt bad about some comments I'm going to make later connecting you with certain characters. I no longer feel bad. I'm going to try to double down. And two, the thing I'm most ashamed about, the thing I'm seriously most ashamed about is when you said Avatar has been delayed, for a second I thought you were being serious. And I was about to look it up and be like, did they really delay Avatar 2? God, I hated that. You're under attack. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to this film could be your life. Do you feel like I, I laid waste to your Yeah. everybody welcome once again to this film could be your life a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously my name is jonathan devine i'm joined as always by mike overstreet hello okay i was yeah we're, this is is this just the rest of the episode we're not gonna can we live our lives a little bit my god what's the okay. line for fight club i am john sadness i don't, I don't remember the actual line but whatever yeah, i mean that 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 is it yeah i am i am whatever uh as hopefully you have picked up on, we are discussing the 2015 animated film from the legendary Pixar Animation Studios, Inside Out. Mm. is directed by Pete Docter. Screenplay was by Pete Docter, Meg LaFauve, and Josh Cooley. The story was by Docter and Ronnie Del Carmen. The cinematography is by Patrick Lynn and Kim White. It was edited by Kevin Nolting. The music was by Michael Giacchino. And it stars Amy Poehler, Phyllis Smith, Richard Kind, Bill Hader, Louis Black, Mindy Cayley, excuse me, Mindy Kaling, Caitlin Dias, Diane Lane, and Kyle McLaughlin. Uh, and I did write Kyle McLaughlin, my boy. 
Uh, just wanted to throw that. It's and he doesn't even have an important part of this movie. I doubt we're going to talk about him again. Did you have any great comments on the dad's character? <laughs> no, I did not. So let's just just get that out of the way. Shout Kyle McLaughlin, great, love that guy. And that's it for this episode for him. Um, it's weird to resuscitate this narrative because I feel like Pixar is like we all just sort of accept they are just gods of filmmaking and stories at this point. Uh, but at the time of release, this was a decidedly like comeback movie for Pixar, mm. which again, it just feels weird. But going back to the research, it backed it up, right? That, that at that moment in time, Pixar had what the perception was they had gotten stuck in sequels like Toy Story 3, Cars. They just announced Toy Story 4. They had a string of not quite so successful movies. And this movie coming out and basically taking over the world. Yeah, and becoming this huge grossing movie. It has a ninety-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, everyone basically has raved about it for the last seven years. Um, really, I think was a big moment for Pixar. Uh, I guess I didn't mention this is a movie that is technically telling the story of a uh, girl named Riley and her anthropomorphized emotions as they deal with some of the consequences of moving and growing up. Uh, over the course of a few days. Um, Mike, do you want to start with Pixar or do you want to start with this movie? Uh, talking about the history. Uh, let's start or with our history. the history of this movie and then we can wheel into Pixar. How about that? Okay. Uh, well, in that case, mine's going to be quick because I only saw this movie uh, two months ago. This That's is the first right, time this ever did. happened on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, this is the first time this has happened where it's like extremely recent. I do not have a history with this movie. Um, Mike has been trying to get me to watch it for what, what do you think? Three, four years, Five generations, years, like generation. It's been <laughs> 10,000 years. Um, and, uh, as always, I kind of just, you know, sort of ignore most of my suggestions, but eventually, uh, some friends were like, yeah, let's watch it. And it was great. I, I, in a sense, we're going to get into this a little bit later in a weird sense. I think people did oversell it where it, once I understood the premise and the way the premise worked, it was that was basically how good the movie is. Mm. But it is an exceptional premise. Yes. It is such a good idea and it is executed so well. So I was on board. Uh, but again, just very not not a long history with this movie. Uh, but I loved it. And 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 I will say on the rewatch, it was like way it, it got a lot better. Because mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I was able to focus. There's so many little details in this movie. Yes. And yes. a lot of them kind of you, you fly by them, I think, the first time. Uh, so that was a great that was a great side of it, I think, as well. Uh, Mike, what do you what's your history of this movie? Yeah, I, so to start where you ended and then I'll go back to when I first saw it. Um, this is one of the few Pixar movies that every time I come back to it, I find something new that makes me like chortle or giggle a little bit. Um, it's just yeah. so, so, so rich with small details, which isn't really a big Pixar thing when you think about it. Like most Pixar movies have a couple of big things that people always remember from each movie. Um, and they do have small nuggets sprinkled throughout, but this one more than any, I think succeeds at being a rewatchable film because of that. As for... Yeah. Um, well, actually, also, I always like this time around the deconstruction room where they go through 2D, 3D, all That's that. Incredible. Just We're like talk about. That. I don't yeah. think I had thought about that at any of my previous rewatches more than a few seconds. And this time around, I was like, this is amazing. Anyway, um, 
first time saying it, I, I honestly don't remember. So it, what is this? This is 2015, so it must have been around then. Um, I am pretty confident that I first saw it actually while I was doing youth ministry. So I think I watched it with a bunch of kids, like middle schoolers or something. Um, and I probably was the only one crying in the room. So there's there's that. Um, this movie is still my favorite Pixar movie, probably. It is the only Pixar movie that still makes me cry just about every time I see it at some point. And the reason why it changes pretty repeatedly. Like, for example, this time around, this is the first time I've seen it since I had a kid. And to play the dad card, um, it hit differently after becoming a dad. So, like, when you're watching sure. Joy go through the forgotten memories of Riley as a baby, as, like, she's forgotten them, and Joy's crying because, like, Riley's never going to remember these things, and she cherishes them. Like, I was like, yeah, oh, cool, that's my life in five years. Can't wait. Um, that's <laughs> devastating. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when you work that way. Yeah. That's, that's tough. So it's just an incredibly affecting movie, emotionally affecting, and that sticks with me every time I return to it. Yeah. I will say Soul might be pushing up against this one in my favorite Pixar, um, but it is telling that those are the two that most effectively tackle pretty big adult themes, but like you said, do so with vehicles that are pretty easy to grasp once you get what they're doing. So. Sure. Yeah, I guess that's my experience with it. I love this movie. I think it's the best of Pixar in a lot of ways. Well, so yeah, I was about to ask that because it sounds like you you have a little bit of a hierarchy going. I mean, uh, we haven't talked about Pixar, right? We it has never we haven't had a Pixar movie. We, Is that true? We touched on it a little bit with Spirited Away. Um, okay. Which this is an interesting movie to comp with Spirited Away because I think those two in comparison are perfect examples of the difference between Pixar and Studio Gimli. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, other than to say that Studio Gimli was better, we haven't really spent much time talking about Pixar and we definitely haven't done a movie. Right. So this is, you know, I, I hinted a second ago, probably, in fact, I think essentially uh, beyond argument, the most acclaimed uh, film studio ever right unless sure. you count disney unless you fold them into disney and then count the entire lifetime of disney sure. um just in terms of sheer uh acclaim and 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 financial success and everything and and really shapes all of uh children's filmmaking for the past you know 30 years or whatever, yeah. right 25 years um you already kind of answered this question. I was going to ask, what's your, what's your, this is at the top. This is, this is it for you with Pixar. It's this and then soul. Yeah. So I think there's an important conversation about how Pixar does its business, which is yeah, Pixar does not always successfully blend the two things it's good at, which is one kids movie. And then two themes that speak to adults. Right. Yeah. I think soul is probably my favorite movie that Pixar has made. Soul is a terrible kids movie. It is not for children. Yeah. It is just like explicitly about death and like the <laughs> thought of that you're going <laughs> to die. Um, and then on the other hand, I think there's movies that, you know, they dabble in the adult themes, but they are more tangibly and more focused on being a children's movie. So I think of like um, Finding Nemo, right? Which I think is a perfect sure. movie. We've talked about this offline. But I think it leans more heavily towards the children's movie while still touching a little bit into that other thing that Pixar can do effectively. 
what I think about yeah. Inside Out is that it is the best balance act of Pixar when it comes to handling both. Um, this is a I fantastic kids movie, and it is a fantastic conversation or a little thought exercise for adults as they think about their lives, too. Yeah, I actually love that dichotomy. I love that you brought that up because that's my I don't know if we're going to I don't think I don't imagine we'll get to this later, but that's my secret hot take on Pixar is that Toy Story 3 is not a very good movie. <laughs> it is. It's, it's ridiculous to say it's not a good movie. Uh, I do think it's insanely overrated. I think it's it's got a lot of storytelling problems. And then beyond all of that, I think it's like so insanely not a kid's movie. Yeah. Like it's just not interesting to watch as a as a kid. It's it's clearly made for us who grew up with it and kind of emotionally manipulative in a certain degree. Um but I, I think I that dichotomy I think really does hold. I agree with you on Inside Out. Um I would say for me, like, you know, Finding Nemo is probably the the best synthesis like the just the best product if you ask me to just name what is like technically the best filmmaking sure and storytelling uh toy story 2 is like such a phenomenal movie it's kind of yeah. crazy yeah it actually it's amazing even just looking at this list like wally is like shouldn't even exist ratatouille is actually <laughs> secretly incredible yeah they have yeah. so many good movies it's it's genuinely baffling um so well, yeah it, i mean i don't know i'm yeah, it, it is funny, like when you think about that run, because it is you're watching them like figure out how to blend the two. And I think Inside Out is like the baby of that stretch, because like I think the most you brought up Toy Story 3. I think the most egregious example is Up. Up is literally like, hey, we made 10 minutes for adults <laughs> and then we made a crappy kids movie for the next like hour and 30 and there's no yeah, effort to really takes. that one. I agree with though. Yeah, We've always been on that. But there's yeah. no effort to try to blend it at all. Right. It's almost like they yeah. made two separate movies and then just crammed them together. So it is really funny when you go back to like Ratatouille again, there are some like adult themes in that movie, but for the most part, it's like, Hey, a rat cooks and it's really wacky. Right. And that's great. I mean, yeah. I love Ratatouille as a children's affair. Uh, can't wait to show Adi that it's going to be a hoot. Yeah. I, I I'm there for all of that. Um, yeah, and I guess the last thing to talk about with Pixar is Pete Doctor, um, which is kind of wrapped up in your point about the comeback. You know, he did Monsters, Inc., which is obviously a banger. And then, like, you know, I think he was kind of more behind the scenes until Pixar was, was flailing a bit. But then to think that he kind of comes out and hits Inside Out and Soul as kind of back-to-back -back works that he was the, the head of, it, it leaves Pixar in a really interesting place moving forward where he seems to be the one with his finger on that dueling impulse of Pixar. Like he has his hand on the pulse of trying to do that combination of children and adult or heavy themes. Um, so it's just really interesting to like think that he might be, or probably not might be, he just is in the driver's seat of this studio moving forward. And it actually makes me really excited to see where they go. Also a little afraid that they're going to just keep going more and more into like the heaviness, but, but mostly exciting. <laughs> Would you, I have a serious question then, is is the issue that, like, the marketing side of it, because if you think about Soul, I'm like, did, and I didn't see Soul, unfortunately, so I can't speak about that much, but I'm like, what's stopping them from just be, from just saying, this is just not a kid's movie, we're just making a movie that is explicitly aimed at, like, young adults and adults, it's, it'd be interesting in a sense. They're never going to do that. But yeah. It'd be interesting. If they That's my problem with it. it. They're not going to do that. I mean, yeah. And you actually, and so you haven't seen soul, but like soul is the classic example of the other side of it, of up where like, it's an adult movie. And then halfway through, they're like, here's a talking cat. And you're like, okay, 
you're just like throwing this in to be like, see, still for kids. I mean, like, um, so yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just the manipulative, uh, manipulative nature of it all. Like if we're going to act like these are kids movies, you should make a kids movie. Like I never have a problem with studio Gimli films thinking, can I show this to Audie and will she like it? Of course she will like it. It's got colors. It's got monsters. It's got talking animals. It's got all sorts of cool stuff. Um, so it's just like the integrity or the honesty of the product in some way. I yeah, um, I, that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so it's what it, it's it's the way it's designing itself to be seen. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And I do um, I like the, I do like the films that keep this element like that keep it playful. Yeah. You know, it does add a layer to the the film that I think is is needed sometimes with this heavy stuff. Yeah. Uh, by the by, do you know the only other so Pete Doctor had been working with Pixar ever since Toy Story. He was a co-writer. Do you know the previous movies he had written and directed? You already mentioned Monsters Inc., but the other one before uh, no. Inside Out. I didn't write that down. Was was up as a matter of fact. Uh, see, he's <laughs> so figuring it little, out. That's a little tough. That's a little tough for me. He's figuring it huh? out, but I think he's figuring it out. You're watching him try to he's navigate figuring out. that. Yeah. Monsters Inc. And then again, he does a lot of work kind of on the side, like co-writer and stuff. Uh, original story for Wally, and then yeah, writes directs up, and then writes Brave, writes Monsters University, writes directs Inside Out, and then Soul. Um, and it looks like he did write Lightyear as well, but did not direct it, which I kind of think looks awesome actually i don't know if you will find out i have no takes on on lightyear so you have no takes you're you're not you're totally holding out you're just waiting haven't even seen the trailer you haven't seen the trailer what what are you doing this is 2022 mike get on on the speed of the world watching inside out for the 80th time i guess watching inside out for the 80th time well with that do you want to get into it let's do it more so the way we structure this podcast we have a few different sections uh for talking about the movie First, we're going to start with uh, why this movie works. Then we're going to get to maybe what holds it back or what doesn't work. Then we have some stray thoughts. And then way later in the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared an essay diving into some deeper part of the movie. But let's just start with why this movie works. And I think we're going to have a lot to say here. Um, in a weird way, for the first time, it's it's difficult to pick something to settle on to start. Uh, you know, Mike, I think the first thing I want to talk about is just the visuals and the design of the movie. Um, so on the one hand, it's Pixar, so it just looks incredible, right? Yeah. Like the little, you know, little particle effects, lighting things, mm. uh, j- just the, you know, the the scale of things, the rendering of everything. It's just, you can just tell it's a quality product and they have always had that going for them, even on their you know, like cars when you're like, okay, maybe this isn't the best movie. It still looks incredible in its own way. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also in a weird way that I feel like we've started to take it, uh, take for granted. Um, the reason why I say that is because on the TV the other day, I was not watching this, but I walked in on a room of someone watching uh, shark tale, I think is the movie. Do you remember shark tale, Mike? Oh, I remember a dreamworks movie. Uh, dreamworks. Smith, I believe always Dr- a pleasure. Dreamworks animation. And that came out, I remember, around the same time as Finding Nemo. It was like one of those things where they were like, hey, they're doing a fish movie. Let's get in on that. And Finding Nemo to this day looks amazing. Looks like a great movie. 
That movie does not <laughs> Shark Tale has, <laughs> has has rather aged, is what I would say. Yeah. And on the one hand, it's just a kids movie, but again, you can directly compare it to Pixar and be like, yeah, their stuff doesn't age because they just put. I mean, some of ages a little bit, but most of it just doesn't age because they put so much effort into making it, you know, just look incredible and all those little details and everything. Um, and that's not getting to the design aspect, but I'll, I'll, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on just the, the visuals from a sheer fidelity standpoint? Yeah. I mean, they just, uh, it's thoughtful. Their visualization yeah. has thought put into it. And I hate to say that, but like when you compare it to shark tales, they're just like, ah, this is how we're going to draw the characters. And this is the technology we have. And, and that's about as far as I can tell, as far as a lot of those like kids movies get with how they design yeah and image their characters or come up with the visualizations. And this movie is like every single part is coherent. The, the internal characters have that quasi staticky look kind of on the verge of being real versus like a hologram. And then that con- which is con- a really cool effect, by the hundred like percent. And then you contrast yeah. that very strongly with the concrete outside world. And it creates a, a, like I said, a very coherent central message that is mirrored in how it depicts itself. And in a sense, when you do that, you create something ageless because even as the technology goes past it, it still feels like a feature, not a bug. When we return to these movies, Toy Story was meant to look the way it looks for a reason. Right. Um, Same with Finding Nemo. Same with especially this movie. So that comes to mind strongly with this movie. I completely agree. I think uh, it's so I like the way you worded that, too, because there's a certain sense where it's like weaponizing limitations is a big thing in Pixar's repertoire, I think, and in most creative forces. And I think, you know, Toy Story is the example everyone uses because it's like, yeah, they they realized they couldn't make very realistic looking people, but they were like, you know, a toy doesn't have to look that realistic. Um, And even as they've gotten to the point where they can make their humans look more realistic, they still recognize the benefits they get from doing like one of the best things in this movie, and this is now getting, talking a little bit more about the design um, decisions, which I think are exceptional. But like one of the best things uh, in this movie I I noticed on the second rewatch is how the um, inside characters, the, the, the emotions and stuff are able to pretty effortlessly switch between very zany cartoon language. Yeah. Like, like you don't, you don't flinch when uh, one of my favorite moments when disgust makes anger, super mad so that she can use his his flames to open the window yeah but you don't yeah, flinch when yeah. we cut back to her and she she pulls down a welding mask right out of nowhere so yeah, it's like a cartoon yeah, yeah but we can also effortless effortlessly seemingly flip to those same characters in really really human emotional moments right like you know when when sadness is is talking um bing bong it sounds it sounds like a weird sound bing bong bing bong What's, don't you dare. Don't you dare do that. There's been a violence-free podcast, and it's not going to stay that way if you, keep, if you start pulling that. Um, I was going to try thought. No. When Sadness is talking to Bing Bong um, and, uh, and and talking him through like him being upset about his rocket being thrown away yeah yeah and like they share like this in this intimate, powerful human emotional moment and again, the, the visual language works where you believe both. And I think people underrate that, right? Like you sure. wouldn't accept it if Wiley e. Coyote like bent his head down and mute and sat in silence for 20 seconds, like 
you know, musing the sadness of life, right? Yeah. It would would register as incoherent to your brain. So there's just a lot of really good design. I think that goes, that goes into that, that makes, that makes you accept that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, I think that's, that's spot on. I mean, this movie, it's so zany and colorful. Like, you know, even like the orbs, like the memory orbs, it's just like so bright and it's so um, wildly insane. There's unicorns. There's an imaginary friend, silly cotton candy elephants, you know, all these like great images for kids by design, like kind of what you're saying that are just like eye candy and they're just bombastic and they are so um, pleasurable and fun in a sense. And that highlights how effortlessly um, and it it just shows like a lot of foresight because they effortlessly without Mm. changing those designs will hit you with something heavy by adjusting. them. So like when the islands of personality start to collapse, like you immediately understand what that metaphor is getting at and it just hits. And yet they haven't changed how ridiculously goofy looking the island is. Right. Um, That's very silly concept. It's very silly image. And yet, Suddenly, again, when the bright yellow orb or orb begins to turn blue, begins to become sad, it, you just have like mm. this sense of what's going on that's built into a very thoughtful design of the yeah. film's key imagery, right? And and they use that to hit things like trauma, to hit things like um, you know, the loss of self and identity and these these just like great overlapping moments of you know, that define our childhood, which is um, like these immense sufferings found in change. Right. And that's built through like silly images. Like I said, there's elephants and stuff and there's a unicorn. It's wild. Yeah. Dream sequences that are so unbelievably ridiculous. And yet they can turn on a dime because built into that design is a thoughtful way in which they can convey both a silly idea and a very complex, nuanced, hard hitting idea within the yeah. same design without it fundamentally changing. Does that make sense? It, it totally makes sense. I'm, I'm there for all of that. Just to dive in a little bit more on the design too. I, I Just the way that everything has, so like you're talking about the dreams. So for the dream area, they make it into like an old timey film studio, right? Where, you know, they're, it's, it looks like the lot of Warner Brothers or something like that. For the imagination land, it's like this theme park with all of these, you know, rides and attractions coming in and out um there's just language like that design language like that that instantly connects with you and and like you understand it but also it sets your brain sort of like your own imagination it sets you kind of going yeah oh yeah Hmm. i see how that works and blah blah blah. it's just so smart can we just take a second you already mentioned it that abstract thought section is such a flex yeah in terms of visual design in terms of in terms of inserting to be frank like weird, imaginative, vaguely existentially horrifying like yeah. thoughts into like the fact that our characters are dealing with becoming um, first like polygonal and then like, you know, eventually like 2D and non-figurative then, like, abstract. Yeah. And then non-figurative <laughs> and joy is like this little star figure and, and sadness is the sad thing It's so smart. And again, it's like an insane flex, like, especially the way um, Pixar, I don't know if they still do this. I think they do. Pixar has kind of had a whole thing as well of only using hand animation. I remember this was a big deal. Um, 
a few years ago that they started putting this on their films sort of as a put and, and it became a big deal because it was perceived as a put down of studios that use motion capture, which a lot of people involved with motion capture said was kind of like, like, you know, ridiculous and like, you know, being unnecessarily like, like whatever about it. Um, regardless of where you stand on that argument of like, if motion capture is as artistically interesting as hand animation, it is pretty ridiculous to realize that this is all like hand animated. And to be clear, yeah, when I say hand yeah, animated, yeah. they're not drawing it, but all of the movements are coming are being, you know, someone is deciding to move the characters like that. It's not someone in a suit just taking care of the motion themselves. You have to have animators actually do that. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, they just do, they just do such an exceptional job. It's, it's an incredible movie just to look at. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Mike, why don't you take it for the next one? What do you have for, for what makes this movie work? Yeah. I mean, this is a, a simple and almost silly to say, cause it's so obvious, but like, I, I don't think this is easy to do. And I think a lot of movies don't do this. And that is inside out just fundamentally understands childhood. And I mean that mm, yeah. in a very positive way, uh, we've been, bringing up repeatedly it's a fascinating contrast to spirited away and i think both through their depiction of the transition from childhood to adulthood though they do it in very different ways they both show that they understand some fundamental part of what it means to grow up and what that Mm. in this case inside out what that feels like you know how things that we as adults shrug off are actually like traumas they're actually like the worst thing the kids ever been through like having to move for example um, you know, how every emotion is simple, but big, how hard transitions are. I, I absolutely love that this film focuses on trauma, but it doesn't pick something that's like profoundly dramatic, traumatic from an parent or an adult vision. It picks something yeah. as simple as like the massive change that comes with moving across the country and how yeah. absolutely traumatic that is for a child. Right. And, and it, it just takes like that sort of thing, that sense of what is hard about being a child. And then just in some very expert ways creates these expressions of that. They're immediately placeable in terms of like childhood experiences that just hit. Mm. I mean, the obviously rip bing bong, but the death of the imaginary friend, um, that's tough. We've already, We're gonna, yeah. that, that seems going to come up later. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. The, the way that they cut back between the islands, personality islands collapsing and flashbacks of her childhood, like the friendship one that's, that just creates like an immediately placeable loss of friends memory. Mm-hmm. If you're a human yeah. being of like, Oh, I remember when I lost my first best friend and we like drifted apart and how like, yeah. absolutely. That felt like a death of myself as a kid. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that I could say about how this movie is trying to manipulate that out of me, but it works. <laughs> and ultimately it, what that reveals to me is that it both gets childhood and then finds a way to depict to that effectively, empathetically, in a way that just makes it immediately like uh, placeable in my own context. Yeah. I, so I, I don't know. I, I, It's a simple thing, but it's hard to do. It's much harder to do than I'm probably giving it credit for. One well, and in a weird way, I, I almost think you're underselling it, um, which is to say, I think you're totally right. But, you know, I, I think this is maybe the same point. One of my notes here of why this movie works is that I think it kind of just captures all of our like like, like what, what I wrote, that I think, is, is maybe the best thing this movie does. And, and certainly one of the most difficult things, I think, is that it captures the symbiotic relationship we share with our emotions, right? And, yeah, and sure. childhood is a time where that's like a very acute 
or it comes to a sort of very acute moment, right? Um, for, for most of us, especially in, in, like you said, those sort of traumas like moving or, or things like that, um, or those experiences. Uh, but it's a relationship that we all have, right? Like weirdly, I think that one of my favorite moments, uh, you actually alluded to it, is when Riley is chatting with her friend and her friend talks about her new friend. Mm. And Riley gets mad and is like, hey, I gotta go and, and shuts the thing down, right? And it's such a small, simple moment, but it captures that that weird way that our emotions simultaneously control us or influence us, but also are part of us and respond to us. And also we are them and they are us. So it's mm. like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to articulate by definition, but there's a lot of things like that where the, the overall relationship that regular humans share with their emotions, I think is actually very tricky to depict and talk about. And this movie just nails it. It's just so, I mean, it needs to nail it because that is what the movie is about, but it does. It, it, it just so locks into the way that those things work and that, and the way that something unrelated can suddenly make you feel upset in, you know, this other context and, and the way that things pile on and the way, you know, um, I think especially the way that like Riley's starts losing control, like, like like when they can't manipulate the board anymore mm, and she's getting on yeah. the bus and it's like, you know, she's literally just avoiding her emotions in order to get through this sense of panic over this crazy decision she's making. And it's like, yeah, I absolutely understand that feeling. Right. Um, there's just a lot of things like that. And I think that's so, so hard to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, no do, do you, yeah, I, go ahead. absolutely. I, I think I wrote down, and I'll try not just to, to say ditto, but I, I don't know if I've seen a movie or an animated movie that more kind of effortlessly conveys that emotional, psychological kind of balance so cleanly and so immediately understandably. It, it, it's exactly what you're saying, where it's like this is actually an incredibly hard thing to depict symbolically and metaphorically more so than you're right. Maybe mm. we were even giving it credit for, and it actually like <laughs> this movie multiple times has a visualization that you're almost jealous of. You're like, that's such an yeah. obvious way to depict that internal battle that she's going through as it flashes between the internal and the external, trying to depict the relationship between them. But it's so obvious that once you see it, you're like, well, duh, like obviously the control yeah. room is the most obvious example. You just, bam, yeah. get it. You get the a conversation between the emotions, the battle over the control panel. That's such an awesome, awesome metaphor. It's so simple, so easy, so effective. But then there are like smaller ones, like when the um, train of thought goes off the rails while she starts making bad decisions. Yeah. And you're like, that's exactly yeah, what yeah. it feels like as I start to lose control of my internal world and just start acting out. It's like, oh, yeah. My actual thought process completely feels like a train off the rails, right? Um, yeah. And that's a, a profoundly effective for such a simple, so simple, like, piece of imagery that they they almost seem to shrug off, and yet you're like, it's perfect. I'm jealous. I'm, yeah. I'm actually jealous. Yeah, and, and I, I totally, think you, or yeah. You, yeah, yeah, you see that throughout the entire thing, whether it's the blurring of the emotions. We already talked about that, the orbs. 
or even like some of the funnier ones, like when the gum commercial keeps getting bumped up from long term memory, you're like, that's what up. that feels like. That is absolutely what it feels like when a song gets stuck in your head. Um, so yeah, I By don't know. Far, I, I think one you're of right. my favorite recurring jokes ever, just because yes. every single time it happens. Uh, it's always, I feel like it's always to anger specifically yes. and just his increasingly erratic responses are incredible. And you're right. That is a, we all understand that moment of like, oh my God, especially I love when the workers are laughing about, yeah, we just send this one up sometimes for no Every reason. three months or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why, why that is true. I don't get that. Um, actually to kind of. I, I totally agree, obviously. To segue off of that, just in general, I want to talk about the emotions a little more in depth because uh, I already said something else is the best thing about this movie. I think the emotions are generally, you know, maybe the best thing about this movie. Um, they walk... So, like, to start with, the way they describe the emotions are so, is so good. Um, mm -hmm. And for what's worth, a uh, little bit of research, apparently they did a lot of discussion with uh, child psychologists and things and just trying to be able to depict the stuff reasonably interestingly, but also accurately, right? Or, or at least in a way that's honest to how people experience life. Um, but like just the, just when they first introduce him and they say, you know, that's fear. He's really good at keeping Riley safe. Yeah. His disgust. She, yes. she keeps Riley yes. from being poisoned physically and socially. That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. It's like just those one sentences are already, I think, like kind of powerful ways to start thinking about your own emotions if you don't already do yeah. that, right? That's like, oh, that is kind of what, what joy does for me. That is what anger does for me. That is like, that's just great stuff. And like you said, it's so cool that it's in the context of a kid's movie, but I think it has, I think that lesson lands for, because that is a lesson in and of itself, oh, lands yeah, for yeah. Um, kids and adults. My essay will get into this a little bit as well, so we don't need to go too much farther on it, but... Um, but did you, do you have, you know, in, in, well, I guess I can talk a little bit more cause it's not just that with the emotions. It's, it's that their dialogue is also so mm. good. Yes. And the way that, well, first of all, it's seriously funny and entertaining a lot of it. Yes, in fact, I, yes, I, yes, I struggled yes. to not cram this full of quotes. I do have one or two I want to mention. Um, but it, it can be extremely funny, but also extremely perceptive and revealing regarding like those different emotional states. Right. So like you get it when, you know, they're going to school and we query all the emotions. Joy is like, this is going to be so exciting. I'm going to have friends. And fear is like, you know, what if this happens? What if I, I, you know, say the wrong thing or I don't make the friends. Disgust is like, I need to make sure that I'm with the cool people. That's actually one of the lines I want to, I want to quote. Discuss says, are you kidding? We're not talking to them. We want them to like us. <laughs> I just, I, so you know good. what? When that line came on, I was just like, man, I hate school so much. Yeah. I forgot yeah. that from, from like middle school. I hate being a kid. Like, <laughs> what a, I hate being a kid. Being a kid sucks. Yeah. Um, and then, and even just the journey of them realizing that like sadness is part of oh, her too. God, right? yes. And like that, that is also part of how she has to cope with the world and, and is a, is a powerful part in things. It uh, is the only other quote I want to mention. Fear says, all right, we did not die today. I call that an unqualified success. <laughs> fear in general is like my, my spirit animal, man. I'm yeah. a huge fan of, of fear in this movie. Fear and sadness. I love those guys. 
Yeah. Uh, so sorry, yeah. I talked a little bit. Just but just about the emotions in general. Like I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that specifically. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll just shout out one scene. I think you you nailed it. But um, the moment when and you already referenced the scene, but when Joy is trying to comfort Bing Bong over his grief mm. and can't, yeah. and then sadness is able to comfort him by like green lighting his ability to be sad is such a simple scene, but like watching joy be surprised and watching that interaction, there's something so powerful about it. Right. Which is just like that moment that joy for the first time is like, sometimes joy can't help. Right. (laughs) Because they're, yeah, I don't know. And obviously that becomes almost like the seed for that, that, embracing of sadness as an acceptable emotion by the end of the film. But uh, yeah, those interactions are, are, especially between joy and sadness are so good. Just so good. And I think it's so, I I totally agree. And it's so relatable too, because I think we have all experienced both from other people. Like we've all experienced being down and having someone's like, Hey, well, let's just saying, let's just have fun, blah, blah. And you're like, this is just not doing it, man. Yeah. This is yeah. Not, I do not need someone to be like, well, things are maybe fine. Let's just do something else. Um, and I think, so on the one hand, we've all experienced that externally, but I also think most of us have probably experienced that internally as well. Yeah. Right. We relate to just the, you know, I just can't buck myself up. I, I need to actually experience this and go through it. Um, yeah. It's incredible. Um, I only have two other things that are both really small, so I can just kind of roll through them real quick. Yeah, sure. Um, we talk about this all the time, so maybe we don't need to spend too much time on it. This is an hour and 35-minute movie. Whew, chef's kiss. I love that, man. Ugh, I'm beautiful. So, I'm, just, beautiful. I'm just so happy for short movies. I, I don't know what happened. Maybe it is it, this a thing? It, is this because oh, I turned 30, Mike? Is this just what life is no, like now? this is it. Just, like, it, pack, my time. it packs so much into that time oh it's so good i was amazed it was an hour 35 when i went for the rewatch i had carved out like two hours just just assuming because I, I didn't pay attention the first time i watched it and i was shocked when i was like hour 30 and that's with credits so really it's functionally like an hour 30 straight. yeah man um, and it's you mentioned it, earlier that it's like that's one of the values of being a cartoon is you can just throw things out without it being questioned this movie uses yeah. that to perfection there are so many either deep ideas or bits that are absurd that they just throw offhanded and a worse movie would try to like explain why they said that or why this character behaves this way. And instead they just yeah. leave it to you to kind of like, uh, get to the, the crux of it. And the movie just keeps moving. And I love yeah. that. I love it. hundred percent. Hell yeah. hundred percent. Um, the last thing I have is just like the voice work is really good. I think yeah. Amy Poehler sure. typifies joy exceptionally well. I can't help joy. I ended up thinking about so much just in terms of people I know who are like that for better or for worse, who are just like all the time, like, Mm. you know, we're just gonna, we're just gonna get this speed. It's just all positive all the time. And I think Amy Poehler's performance captures what is so, um, so like fun about that. And so, so great about that. And also the degree to which that becomes like truly exhausting. And yes. again, maybe this is a 30-year-old perspective, but uh, there is a moment. I, th- there, I think the movie knows this, that the character becomes like two other characters a little bit like, okay, we get yeah, it. Absolutely. Can we please calm down? Um, Phyllis Smith is such a good sadness. It's insane. And, <laughs> she's the real MVP of this movie. She's the I, MVP of this yeah, movie. It's, yeah. so, it's so on the nose. And again, you just yeah. get it. Um, 
Actually, I'm going to disagree with you. The MVP of this movie is Michael Lewis Black as anger. Sure. Uh, sure. He, yeah, I think he, like, that he is has just the... Michael Lewis Black. It's <laughs> he just him. He definitely gets yeah. the most, uh, the the best lines pretty often. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Got, he's awesome. I love him. I, I Even, I think in every other character's brain that we go into, anger is always the funniest as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love when I love the argument between Riley and her dad. Oh my gosh, the foot just down, escalating. The foot yeah, is down, like, sir. I think we're we're detecting some sass. <laughs> All right, <laughs> and we're like, yeah, that's how that happens, though. You go and again. It's so funny, but it is kind of true. Like that's what's going on internally. You're like, wait a second, wait a second, what? The foot um, is also down. just the mom's like disappointment that the dad clearly was not listening to the conversation. Yeah. Um, maybe yeah. cliche, which will possibly come up later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But also super funny and like it in its own way, relatable just from the perspective of you've ever, if you've ever like not been paying attention to a conversation and then been called in to like do something important and been like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So how's it going champ? And it's like, dude, <laughs> what are we doing here? It's great. Oh. I love it. Yeah. Um, and then, I, I mean, all the voices are great. I just called them out specifically. Those those three, I, I just really, really appreciated. Um, that's all I have for what makes this movie work. Do you have anything else, Mike? Got two quick ones. Um, Hit me. You know, I want to, while we're on this train, I want to just throw out two quick lines. Just two simple bits that get me every time. The one where Joy is talking to Bimbong and she knocks over the box of facts and she says, oh no, these facts and opinions look so similar. And Bimbong throws them all to the same box and says, don't worry about it. They get mixed up all the time. It's just great. It's, it's a little throwaway. That's Hilarious. That's, you know what? It's great. It's also just, it's it's like, you know, 1% a little bit depressing. Well, it's like You're you like, said too. You You're immediately like, oh. are like, yeah, that's how it goes. That's true. Yeah. Um, like that is what happens, isn't it? That is what the, we're all doing. And then another shout out to Bing Bong. There's that scene with the constant repetition of there's deja vu, there's language processing, there's deja vu, there's yep. language processing. Yep. I I laugh at simple stuff like that. And this movie has a treasure trove of throwaway lines that are just glorious, just absolutely yeah. glorious. You'll find a new one every time. Um, and it's just and it's like it's like they're in a playground, right? Where it's yeah. just like we have so many things to riff off of, and we can just like bang, bang. Here now we're you know making a bit about this and whatever. It's it's so good, yeah. And then it moves on, and I love it. And uh, then it moves on. Yeah. Last thing I'll shout out is the score. I think between this and Soul, oh, I don't know why I didn't mention yeah, that. It's an amazing yeah. that little um that little, little piano keys, man. riff. The dude, that's but, so good. Yeah, and, and they get and really it keeps into coming up in different contexts too. Like they they weave it into different motif, or it's it's one motif that ends up getting woven through the entire movie. Absolutely, um, and yeah. like it's I was humming it like the the next like week, right? So it was just, catchy. It was kind of catchy, but just also just really lovely. It's just a lovely little part. I like that it, so much. In a yeah. really weird way, it always reminds me of the Social Network. That dun dun dun, yeah. and like and they'll exactly just like play mean. that at the perfect time to make it. Um, just really kind of like bring to a next level an emotional scene or or a sensation, right? And just fantastic. Uh, Soul also does a lot with piano. I think Pixar and pianos are becoming one of the most dominant duos in this league. So I mean, like shout up, out that that first section of Up, if you remember, uh, yeah, is just a piano solo piano the whole time, and it's 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 it's, it's tough. It hits you. <laughs> It, it gets down. It gets. Well, it becomes mournful in that one part when they find out they can't have kids. 
it's like oh spoilers for uh you know 20 year old movie um yeah it, right before they brutal. go on a stupid and adventure like, and no one cares um but anyway man we gotta do up at one point just so we can make everyone hate us just for that <laughs> just when we want to throw in the towel and just like let's just go out on a big note and just can you imagine we how do we combine good... up in toy story 3 and it's just me hating you... on toy story 3 you hating on up can you imagine how good up would have been if the first 10 minutes were just a pixar short like oh my god anyway. this is anyway. my uh, yeah you're speaking my language okay sorry Whatever. to everyone who hates us now uh what's your last last that was it point? i'm done oh that was it all right uh stick around after the break we're gonna get into what maybe holds this movie back everybody welcome back uh we're gonna go into now what maybe holds this movie back a little bit um mike here's the first thing i wrote i'm just gonna read this word for word okay from what i wrote down this while, while watching the movie riley growing up and losing her childlike innocence parentheses death of goofball island especially the sacrifice of bing bong is obviously great writing and incredible thematic beats but this is my podcast, so I'm putting this in the negative section because I didn't ask for all of this. Yes, yes. And then right below it, I wrote, I wrote this before that scene came back, and seriously, I can't handle Bing Bong fading into existential nothingness. WTF is this movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's so tough. Yeah. I, I just want to call attention to it. Yeah. Obviously, it's not really what doesn't work, but it is that will catch you off guard or caught me off guard. That's just brutal. I just, there's no other word for it. That is just emotionally like beating up on their audience who's above a certain age, I think. Yep. Um, I wrote Pixar woke up and chose violence. I wrote in my stray thoughts, Bing Bong dying, quote, take her to the moon for me. Jesus Christ, John. Nope. Nope. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Nope. What are you doing? And he doesn't, and they don't just let him like, be down there in the like you know in, in the in that like underground world he literally yep. fades into, into non-existence abyss. <laughs> like damn man I can't, I can't do this it's uh it's i didn't ask for this today i didn't need this today it, yeah i'm with you we haven't mentioned it uh i i just i mentioned it a second ago the death of goofball island is pretty rough too because you think about like yeah. like just being a kid and like like that because we all do have that moment where it's like you you know you're so silly and then you see her and so, her dad have this great relationship and it's like oh oh wait so I I, I, I brought up how this movie hits different when you're a parent that's one that's like yeah I I, that I, I actually put yeah. that on the same level of I don't need this today as Bing Bong's death like when that happens and I thought about I believe that because Adi our our two and a half year old is like her her only island is goofball island like it is like yeah. her life and i was like yeah no i didn't need this today you, you chose violence yeah, I, I don't want to think about neat that. <laughs> thank you <laughs> like, it's tough it's tough all right let's get into the things so in that case i only have a couple things of truly what doesn't what doesn't actually work and both of them i'm holding a little loosely yeah me too um, for both of mine actually so uh First one, I, I don't feel necessarily qualified to discuss it in depth. I kind of just wanted to pay a quick nod to the uh, perception that a lot of animated film fans have, which is sort of lamenting the rise of celebrity voice actors mm. for yeah. vo vo vocal roles over dedicated uh, voice artists. 
Um, apparently, this Mike and I were talking about this a little bit before. Apparently, this goes back to uh, Robin Williams's genie be, becoming like the breakout character of Aladdin, and ever since then, it's like let's get these big, you know, marquee name um, actors in all of these parts. And obviously, like we already, you know, I already said, I think the actors are great in this movie. Amy Poehler is amazing, all this stuff. Yeah, sure. But some part of me does wonder if there isn't a truth to the idea that like there's something, there's something really great about having someone who's dedicated to the vocal craft, right? To the craft of of just voice artistry. Um, I think about like video games who still have kind of a group, you know, are mostly acted by video game people. And they get to do like all this really exciting work where it's, you know, it's like, oh, this doesn't sound like anyone else. This sounds like that character, right? You don't have that moment of like, oh, okay, that's Amy Poehler. And yeah. I, I know, and I can yep. tell that. And I'm 100%. That. Yes. Um, the case in point, like the only one of these where I think it's a real case in point in this movie is Bing Bong, who we've mentioned a couple times. And the reason why, I mean, the character is good and the voice actor is good. It's voiced by Richard Kind, who I really like. He's in Curb a lot, and I love Curb. Uh, it's Curb Your Enthusiasm is one of my favorite shows. Um, but having said that, the the persona of the character, I think, is like hugely injected with Kind's on-screen persona. Sure. Right? Like it's very much his kind of comedy vibe. And like I do wonder if a dedicated voice artist wouldn't have been I don't know, in some sense, more true to the character or less like bringing in their own sort of vibe and more like expressing whatever is there for the character. I don't know. I'm not, again, I don't feel qualified to talk about this. Um, but but I, I do kind of think about that and, and I do wonder about that with the future. So, um, so I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Mike? Is that, you know? Yeah, I, I, I don't like the trend that unless I am genuinely curious, um, I don't really want to feel compelled or pushed by the movie to look up who's voicing who. Um, mm. And when I clearly hear Amy Poehler as a character, I'm like, is that Amy Poehler? You know, and I, I don't yeah. know how valuable yeah. again. I don't really know if it's something to legislate, but I, I do notice it. I do tend to agree with you at the very least because they're getting pushed out of this field, which is a shame. Yep. Uh, it just feels like um, capitalism doing its thing uh, to try to put a name Yay. on a poster. I, I actually, yeah. it's funny you actually praise the person who I think of that with the most, but that's, you know, our boy anger. It's just like, this is literally, <laughs> Michael Lewis Black, yeah. you're just Lewis Black. Yeah. yeah it's just like, yeah, you know, yeah. um, but at the same time in real life, I'm like, Lewis Black, you're just angry. So <laughs> maybe that works. <laughs> that, that is literally his, his bit. Yeah. But that's I, his vibe. I did feel that very strongly with Big Bong too, where I'm just like, this is just kind. This is just him. This is him in yeah. a movie with a silly outfit. And, and that's distracting yeah. at the very least, uh, potentially more troublesome than that too. But, and again, I mentioned video games. The other reference though, is think of any Disney movie before or yeah. any animated Disney movie yeah. before, um, like 94 ish, right? Like, you know, the first Lion King, Matthew Broderick is, is one of the characters, but you don't think about any of the characters yeah. as their voice. They're just characters and little mermaid and, 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 uh, beauty and the beast. It's just, you know, the characters come first, not the actors, which incidentally is also something that I think is really bad about, or one of the things, one of the many things that's really bad about the Disney live action remakes. We won't get into that too much, yeah. but notice just for what it's worth, how much those things are so much more obsessed with the celebrity actors yes. than with the characters. And yes. you go back to the originals and it's like, no one knows who, like, yeah, Angela Lansbury is the teapot, but it's like, no one knows who the beast is. 
Um, so I think that's a cool thing that is kind of lost, and I do wonder about that. But, uh, but all the same. Uh, my last one, I honestly really went back and forth on whether or not I wanted to include it just because it's so, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm going to articulate this well. And in a sense, it's so nitpicky, um, but I'm going to give it a shot and we'll see. Okay. Um, so this movie is really, 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 really good. Right. Yeah. But when I think about the overarching plot, I think in a weird way, it holds the movie back a little bit. The journey through the subconscious that joy and sadness take feels a little bit like a concession that they had to make to the fundamental workings of most successful stories and Pixar stories and that we have to have like a journey, but that plot line isolated doesn't actually have that much impact on the plot themes or key ideas of the movie. In my opinion, like things come up while they're doing that, but nothing that actually they do is directly tied with those themes. It, what I'm, what I'm saying is like the movie fails to be significantly better than the sum of its parts mm. in a sense, or, or even significantly better than its specific scenes and ideas, um, which is absolutely nitpicking, right? Like I, you know, I, I just getting that out here again, uh, by comparison though, if like, because as I was writing this, I was like, well, what's the positive example? If you think about the first toy story, right? Um, which also is an incredibly well-made movie, I think what the first Toy Story does, or one of the things it does, is that it marries the emotional and physical journeys the characters go on. So by the end, when they're trying to overcome the physical obstacle of the film, it is also the representation of their emotional obstacle where they can't get along and be friends, right? Mm. And it's and like the synthesis of that is just just transcendent screenwriting. And again, as amazing as this movie is, I don't know if it connects its different parts together with that same sort of finesse. So, so this is real, real nitpicky. I, I can be talked out of this, but on, I was just trying to put words to the sense where I was like, there seems like this disconnect between the literal journey the characters take and the actual arc that they go on. Like those things aren't necessarily related. So um, on one hand... I agree in small segments. So, you know, going through the deconstruction room is just a flex, like you said, that has nothing to do with the plot. It doesn't impact the journey. On the other hand, I so wildly disagree with you that it's almost um, time to fight. It's almost time to knuckle up, John, because like, (laughs) you know, the best part is I wrote at the beginning this is going to be tricky because Mike loves this movie so much. Yeah, well, no, so I, I actually... I, I wrote that on my notes. I was like, I got, I got to walk gingerly. I don't I, know how to sell this. I actually think it's okay to criti- criticize me. I think this point... I, I just disagree with this point fundamentally. That's <laughs> Specifically. Um, you're, you're wrong sometimes. That's you know, okay. There's, um, there's a couple of scenes spread throughout of bringing joy in particular, in particular, joy to accept sadness. That is the critical arc of the film in terms of the external right. world and the internal. And that is, I think, very consistently built upon each step of the journey in small ways. Um, Whether it's, you know, Joy picking up the dead memories and crying for herself the first time, that's a big one. But even like watching their interactions surly blur as they are forced to interact, um, basically by the complexity of their own journey together, I think is the critical movement. And I think the story does build into that over and over gradually, gradually, until you get to, I think, 
and this is where I really disagree, the most transcendent flipping between external journey and internal journey of any Pixar movie, which is the moment that mm. she creates a blurred memory and the girl starts to cry to her parents in real life. That is as hitting and as effective as a like summary conclusion to a story and blending of those two journeys as I can think of Pixar doing like when she breaks down and just says like, I miss Minnesota. I miss my friends. That is, oh, like, that was going to come up later. That was going to come up in stray thoughts of like, like that is, yeah, that yeah. is an incredible scene. But That's I think one of the, I think the whole movie yeah. is when it, you're right. There are parts where they stray from that journey to that scene. But I do think the whole movie has that scene in view and is trying to get us there. Um, which obviously corresponds with the internal yeah. stuff of the mixing of the emotions of the spheres. But here's what I'm saying. And again, I'm nitpicking, but I agree with you. That scene's incredible. Do you notice, do you even like, have, would you remember one or two years outside of seeing this movie, how they get from the journey to that? Like there's a hand wave. Like there's a, there's a like, Oh, we'll solve this problem with that. Mm. That's not really related to anything. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, like if you think about, like, actually, I could even name, like, The Incredibles as I think better about this. Toy Story I already mentioned. Like, like if you think Finding Nemo, where it's like there's such a direct connection between the story and the emotional arc that our character's climax has to coincide with their overcoming almost all. Like, it's basically rolling all of their obstacles into one thing. Right? Of course. Yeah. Where I, it's like us solving yeah. our inter our relationship is also us solving how we get onto this truck of course, is also me um, solving. And if you think about it, you are the wrong. journey of them being <laughs> the journey of them. Wait, wait, the journey of them being out of the headquarters and having to get back in order to be able to do this. Joy goes on a journey, but ultimately that is kind of incidental to her. Except like 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 nothing in that forces her to reconcile and to solve at the same time all of those problems at once. No, because I, 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 the whole point, I, agree. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole what, point what? is that as she goes through this trauma, joy leaves her and sadness she denies, right? So those mm -hmm. emotions are lost as she tries to navigate a traumatic situation. And they, as two separate emotions, are seemingly believed to be like um, opposed emotions, have to go through a journey of accepting one another as valid for her to process her trauma in a healthy way, which is embracing a, a memory and a grateful memory of her past while also weeping over its end. Right. And that yeah. is truly the return home of those two emotions to the control room. Like, so I, I think in the context of the larger story of trauma and like coming to be a more uh, kind of complicated, complex person who can hold all these things in the same hand, you have to have the hero's journey of return to some way of these two specific emotions together. And then their acceptance along their journey together that they both belong. Like, I, I guess I just disagree. Um, yeah, it's fine. Which is fine. But we, yeah. yeah. Somehow it hasn't happened on this podcast too much, but Mike and I do usually disagree <laughs> quite a lot. On, and it usually sounds like things, what so. just happened right there. Of yeah. John Where trying we, to explain we were himself. I was like, well, and I was just like, no, <laughs> no. And Mike just says, no. Uh, I, I I think I see what you're saying. I, I will still say, and again, the context is what holds this movie back. Yeah. I think there's a version of this where those things are, are because like a certain sense, again, I just keep going back to from a certain perspective, the, the central physical quote unquote conflict that our main characters join sadness have to go through. 
is not as tied to the emotional arc as I think it could have been. Mm. And in the best version of any story, those things are essentially synonymous. And so I think that's the only, and it's so I'm, I'm holding it lightly. It's, this is still an incredible movie, but, uh, but that's the thing I think could have really taken it up one other level. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I so, think we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that one. I can live with that. I think the hard part for me is it, I, I generally agree with the point, but in different ways, which is mm-hmm. if this movie has spare parts that don't serve its central journey, it's actually the parts of the film that I just liked the most. Like again, sure. the deconstruction place, the dreams, like all of that stuff is so unnecessary to the journey of these characters in a lot of ways. Um, but I also love sitting in those places cause they're fun and they're the kids elements of the well, movie. And I want those things too. I, I'm not but, advocating to take those out. No, I'm no, just no. advocating yeah. to, yeah, to change the nature of that journey so sure. that it, it's, somehow tied and i don't know how to do it i mean I'm, you know i'm, I'm uh <laughs> call pete doctor all the, all the same yeah i'll call pete i'll call pete uh i pass him on the way to work you know so sure uh but yeah i i can accept that i can accept that i mean you're wrong but you know yeah my no, i don't know if you know this mike but i don't actually have any opinions truly Everything i think of is, is facts it's facts it's, yeah. it's, fa- it's factually true <laughs> It's just, uh, just man. totally accurate. The idea that the, uh, those two uh, arcs don't overlap is the just, worst take I've ever heard. Anyway, moving on. Um, that's all I got for for what holds this movie back. Do you? What, what do you got? I actually have uh, two. I don't really think that there's much conversation to be had about either. One is definitively no one of them. Yeah, one of them's definitively just a, a note, which is that this is definitely this actually might be i'd have to look it up this might be the last movie pixar makes before they start actually like confronting their lack of diversity in their films um Mm. pixar had a pretty rough track record of just being like all the characters are white in a lot of stuff and they've obviously gone out of their way to correct that in a positive way Mm -hmm. with movies like soul and i hope they continue to do better of actually reflecting on how to not only to pick diversity in the characters, but also of like experience um, has not always been high on Pixar's priority list as a Silicon kind of Valley ish studio. Um, And I don't mean that in placement. I mean that in sensibilities in a lot of ways, it has a lot of the same problems of representation um, and Hollywood. So I think the one that maybe warrants a little conversation is I, I personally do not love the way that gender plays out in this movie. It doesn't Mm. appear to be a very major driving force of Riley, but her parents clearly have two stereotypes kind of at play in their internal worlds of the woman in sadness, um, anger, and the man. Not to mention their internal worlds are very stereotypical in the sense of one daydreams about hockey, the other one about some helicopter pilot or whatever. Um so there's just like some yeah brazilian helicopter it is which is funny it's super funny but it's also very gender stereotypy right and yeah and there is an argument which maybe you're about to make that there so there's a really interesting thing that's taking place there which i'm gonna let you talk to because i know this is a point you wanted to there's another argument that you could make that is well these emotions are in the pilot chair of their um internal world because of you know social programming i don't think this movie has that in view so i think where i land is it has a very interesting concept about which emotions that we have kind of as the leader in our room which maybe you want to speak to i know that interested you but at the same time i don't think they handle specifically uh, 
kind of decoupling from gender stereotypes um, that kind of get attached to that interesting idea effectively enough. Yeah. I actually don't. I, I, I wouldn't really make any point against you. I think that I'm totally on board. The, the like, the, the very, I, I would hold this a little loosely, but like, if, you know, if we're just talking about it, I would say I was a little bit, I, I was so happy that Riley is not a very gendered character yeah, that we didn't fair. have to, we didn't have to suffer through 20 minutes of like, oh, and this is how princess, you know, Riley feels about boys. And this is yeah. how it feels about this thing of that thing. And the fact that that character was able to just exist as complex and, you know, not tied to, to gender roles, I think in any particularly strong way, um, that does a lot for me with the movie. And then, and then even, and, and like my only other real defense of, of like the, cause I think you're totally right. Um, I actually already kind of made this point to you earlier, but uh, off camera or off mic. But I would say that like there is a certain degree with that where I imagine that those are such small scenes and happen so quickly um, that from a storytelling perspective, I imagine they the thinking was like we just need, we we will resort to the cliche just to make sure people immediately know what we're doing. And also to make some cheap jokes that are going to get people laughing. Right. Yeah. And it's like, does that, is that a defense? Not really. Cause I'm basically saying they could have done better. Like I, I think they could have. And, and maybe that, you know, in that sense, I think this fits the section perfectly where it's like, well, what holds the movie back? I think it would have been a better movie like that if it didn't sure. resort to those things. Um, but for, for, for a, essentially five minutes out of an hour and a half movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for just a, a scene that for scenes that just play real quickly and aren't that consequential of a plot, I, I, I guess I'm just like, yeah, I get it. I, I know why they did that. And it's like, yeah, you know, I would prefer they didn't, but I, I, I get it. So, um, so I don't know. essentially I agree with you though, that, that, uh, that does stick out a little, that does stick out when you watch it. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. That makes sense. I like that. Uh, all right, well, let's just move on. Next section we have is discussing stray thoughts where uh, kind of just what says on the tin. Mike and I have each collected a few random thoughts regarding the movie. We are trying something new. We are limiting ourselves so we don't go a little too long to 10. Having said that, two, four, six, eight. I only have nine, Mike. I oh. didn't even get to 10 somehow. I didn't have to limit any. <sighs> um, limitless. Yeah, I don't know. What are we doing limitless? I'm literally never i will quit the show <laughs> glad we got that out uh but let's just go for it uh is it okay if i start yeah go ahead i'm so happy you said that because guess what mike what guess what i'm gonna i'm gonna preempt you i'm gonna do it i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna sneak in there oh. finally if there are 28 episodes oh. worse hang oh no Sad- <laughs> sadness so now we both have nine i'm still like one of yours Worst hang. <laughs> uh, sadness. I think this was the best comparison. Sadness or Llewellyn Davis. Mike, worst hang. This is, what do you this is literally the office meme of tell me the difference between these pictures. And I'm like, they're the same picture. They're the same picture. Well, I was hoping you were going to respond. What is the difference between the two? Honestly. Okay. 
at this point. Well, follow up question in, the, in that. Whoa, wait, real quick then. Follow up yeah. question. Would this movie be better or worse if Llewellyn Davis was in the role of Sadness? Like <laughs> so the exact same better. role, but it's just Llewellyn Davis. So much better. That'd be a great movie. I'd L- watch that. Llewellyn Davis is literally what happens to Riley if she never deals with any of her baggage ever. Oh, she just has all the simple emotions for the rest of her life. <laughs> that's tough. That is. Oh, that, that's my a lot. God. I guess I'm just going to. I'm just so happy. I can leave the show now. I'm. I'm just. I. I finally got in there. You've yeah. gotten me off guard this every single time, and uh, yeah, I had my moment in the sun. Worst part is it wasn't even on my straight thoughts this week, and here, here it comes. The knife in the back. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. I was gonna let it go. <laughs> what are you doing over there? <laughs> and I've been murdered. <laughs> I am gonna go ahead and pick sadness because. Uh, I just want to mm. keep Lewin's uh, losing streak alive. He's just. Really... I was gonna say that. I was like, I'm just, I'm just stoked for us to find a new character every week to like <laughs> not some... to, to want to hang out with more than Llewellyn Davis. You should have said Bing Bong. That would have been a pretty close race. I would have been like, oh, I don't know about that. Would it? Would it really have been though, dude? Bing Bong, Bing Bong, Bing Bong, Bing Bong. You're in. You get to go to the moon with Bing Bong. You don't do that with Llewellyn Davis. You're just actually, sitting in a coffee shop being depressed. Actually, I get to disappear into an existential abyss if okay. I hang out with Bing okay. Bong. Okay, let's just let's just let's just move on. Let's just let's just move on. So okay, it's too much. You know what? You took a shot at me. I'm ready to take a shot at yeah. you. Are go for it. are you let's ready right now? Yeah. On air mm-hmm. to apologize mm-hmm. to me for refusing to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> are you ready? Is this the only reason you want to do this podcast? I want, I want a full repentance. I want, I want to hear you. Listen, to listen. I've been, I've been working through a lot of my own emotional stuff. This is going to come out later in uh, my essay. Uh, I've been on a journey. I'll be honest. You know, I'm, I'm growing. I think as a human being, I'm learning new things about myself. I've been in therapy. Things have been going great. Uh, I have a thing inside of me where if people recommend something to me vehemently enough. I like kind of end up really disliking them for it and not wanting to watch the movie. So the answer is no, I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> and at some point, at some point, yeah, I'm going to have to examine that. I, I get that. You're just going to gaslight me instead. Just yeah. Gonna... <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep saying like, yeah, well, you know what? You shouldn't have sold it so strong. You should have maybe taken off the gas a little bit. Let me work this for is it. on you. <laughs> this is on you. Let them work for it. That's what I'm saying. Oh, go to hell, John. Okay. Good. This is this is maybe more than any podcast has been like an actual conversation between the two of us. Um, just just to lighten the mood a little bit. This uh, I just wrote. This movie made me remember how much I hated moving as a kid. Yeah. We moved a lot when I was a kid, and it, we it is true that it's like this is like this is exactly how how crappy that felt. You're just like, cool. All my life is gone. Don't have all my friends are gone. This is literally the worst experience. Let's do it again in a few years. It's like, yeah, there's a reason why you remember that stuff. So sounds brutal. uh, So thank you, Pete doctor. Didn't necessarily need want to remember that, but, uh, but cool. Good times. Mike made me watch this movie. So here we are. Here we are. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I did not move much as a kid. So that's actually something I don't relate a ton to this movie about, but Mm. yeah, have my own trauma. So, Okay, this one's pretty simple. Like, I know that childhood is hard, okay? But Mm. someone needs to tell Riley what's about to come her way, which is that she just moved to San Fran in time for the Warriors dynasty to go (laughs) off. 
okay? So maybe she needs yeah, to quit her stroke. whining and get ready for Steph Curry, okay? Because I thought so- you were going to say quit hockey and get into... Oh, that like, too. I, I feel like... Who cares? Yeah, Boo. what is she doing playing Boo. hockey? It's like, yeah, you're an amazing... You're in San Francisco. Don't play hockey. Come on. Dude, Kevin yeah, Durant is about to come join Steph Curry and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson. Get they're ready. about to have a 73 win season. It's going to be amazing. Nah, this that's, is gonna, that, I that's mean, not too great. They lose that one. But well, anyway. it doesn't end that great, but the sea, but you know, it's a good ride. I'm it's all about the ride, Mike. Destination, <laughs> I mean, not the journey. Des- it, well, as, as, as I've I was, always said. As you've always said, you've always been on the record about that. Would you rather your favorite team has like a, like a tough season, but then clinches the, the finals or like just destroys, but then. Actually, I guess you do want the finals. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah only I want the, the finals. What do they, what do they say in Moneyball? It's like no people only remember if you win the last game. Yeah. That's a great line. It is a great. We should we do, gotta Moneyball. do Moneyball. Anyway, Moneyball podcast. Moneyball. This is the Moneyball podcast. Um, here's my next one. All of the interactions between sadness and joy when Joy is trying to cheer her up feel like conversations I've had in my life. <laughs> and I'm if in case you haven't picked up on this as a listener, I would be the part of sadness. In yeah. But that's yeah. just very relatable. Every time that Joy is just like, try to think positive. And then Sadness says, I'm positive that this is not going to work. And I'm like, yeah, I feel like I've said that. Yeah. I feel like I've literally like said I've that, had that interaction me. with people. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I feel my like Mike God. and I have done this. Yeah. John felt so attacked by that intro because it was true. Anyway, um, it was tough. It was tough. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. It's broccoli tantrum ensues. Oh, it's an airplane. Here comes an airplane, everybody. Girl calms down and eats. That is literally the most being a parent thing I have ever seen. That is true life. I was going to ask you that. That's just yeah. on the money. That it's is, just that is a real on. experience. It is. She's just like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> Explosion. <laughs> but it can be even simpler. She might just be like, I love mac and cheese, but the shade of yellow looks off in this lighting. So I'm just going to throw a tantrum and not eat it. Which is, it's really funny though, because like, it is true that that is an instinctual, you know, evolutionary thing that's like trying to keep you from being poisoned. It's like, she looks at that and thinks, that's not the mac and cheese I know. So I'm going to, you know, refuse to eat it. It's like, but dude, (laughs) dude, dude, you love mac mac and cheese, cheese. please. (laughs) We promise you it's the same. Uh, I, I, I don't have the exact quote, but I also loved, there's a moment when, I think they're like getting really upset or something. And then mom is like chill and anger is like, Oh, mom says things are good. We're fine. Yeah. Just as like relaxed. And it's like, yeah, that's what being that. That's actually maybe the most I felt related to the movie in terms of that's what it was like being a kid. Yeah. And that's a, that's a feeling you do kind of think about. I think of like, man, those were the good days. But I was like, Oh, mom and dad say this is fine. I'm okay. And it's like, that's it. That's all we needed. That's Um, it. Okay, finally, I've gotten to this to this thought. Just so you know, and again, I, I felt bad about this thought before, and then after the intro, I didn't feel bad. Just so you know, Mike, every time anger pipes up, I kept picturing your <laughs> internal dialogue. I just in my head, I was like, "This must be what it's like to be Mike." Yeah, and to be honest, uh, to to a certain extent, I envy you for it because, like, my I would say my anger voice is very subdued, um, but I can just picture Mike at any unjust situation internally like what this is dumb i'm gonna stick it to you old man like i could just see you like going through those internal thoughts when something is happening in the external world that you're just like wait i don't think that i don't agree with that 
Yeah. Uh, 100%. So yeah. It's it. This is it my tracks. Life. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is you. Not, not ashamed. There you go. Oh. Live into it. Own it. You uh, you lived in California. It, yeah. One, is broccoli pizza real? And two, the dream where it's like, eat me, I'm organic, and she flips out. Like, I am so with you, fam. And the West Coast can go straight to hell if that's actually a real thing. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm just going to be real. I was never in San Fran. Ah. California is huge. And I feel like, from what I gather, that is very that is very San Fran Bay, Bay Area. Um but I was in a very rural part of California. I was frankly sure. disappointed with how not like California. I, I wanted, yeah. I wanted to be, I wanted it to be more on that side of the scale. Uh, my part of California was much more, frankly, like kind of the South. You know, just very rural, very just th- those kind of vibes. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. California's big, man. That's okay, the, that's the real takeaway. Whatever, hot take. Um. I feel like if the mom had a chance with that Brazilian helicopter pilot, which is kind of nebulous, like I couldn't quite get a read if that's a real person or not. Mm. If it is, I do wonder if she should have taken that. Yeah, sure. If that would have been a better life for her. Riley's dad's business does not seem to be going well based on the conversations. he's. Every time we hear him, something bad is happening. Yeah. He knows that. Yeah, what is so he So I'm just like, maybe... Do? Helicopter pilots have a lot of job security. I feel like there's just always demand, you know? Well, so until just... tourism tanks during COVID and then. Well, you know. Not so much. I think she could. I think that would have been the better move for her. Sure. I'm just, I, I'm sad for her. Yeah. If that get, was a real possibility at one point. Get started on the fan fiction, the alternative universe fan fiction. There you go. Um, that'd be weird. Anyway, let's be real. This movie is about how Silicon Valley ruins the American nuclear family. Because it pulls them from Minnesota, from their their happy idyllic lives in Minnesota yep. to to a night to the nightmare of San Francisco, where it pulls the dad out of family life. Uh, yeah, apparently yep. it's semi autobiographical. Pete Doctor uh, moved from Minnesota, I believe, to to California and, and hated it and all of that. So yeah, I mean it. It tra- I I thought you were gonna zag and say it's more about um, the destruction of small town America. That too. Uh, Why not both? <laughs> Why not both? Um, I really love that canonically our heroes straight murder the cloud couple. Yes. And I wrote, oh my God. I wrote, is this a first for a Pixar film? And then I put, uh, incidentally, that's also my favorite joke in the whole movie is when the one guy is when the worker says, forget it, Jake, it's cloud town. Yeah. That's such that, that yes. I think yes. I, I yes. genuinely laughed at that. It's an incredible oh moment. Oh my God. It's so good. Um, that's tough. They ve- literally murdered them. Very <laughs> related. Very related to that point. Yeah. In terms of me. the dark underbelly of Pixar. Can we talk about how the treatment of Bing Bong by the dream place is like, they essentially execute him for crashing a film set. Yeah. That's, that's tough. That, like, that's they're I, like, I, I, you crashed the I dream say... death sentence. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> without he, a judge, uh... without any, justice system they just throw yeah. him in it's it's alarming it's, i don't know <laughs> it does seem very like sort of martial law down there or not even it seems just kind of like anarchy down there yeah, you know? it's like like, anarchy. It's like, mad max baby fury road it's just fury road <laughs> oh uh in the film character playoffs for bad parents where are we placing 
Riley's parents' total inability to figure out how upset their daughter is about the crappy move. Like, cause, and you know, so let's, let's litigate this for just a second. Yeah. Because I'm okay with them because they have a lot going on, right? Clearly. Yeah, sure. So I'm okay with them kind of not necessarily picking up at first, but when she has already acted out, I, I th- if I'm remembering the timeline, right? Like has already acted out either at dinner or, or here. The issue for me is when she throws her stick down and bounces from the hockey tryouts, neither of them is like, Hey, honey, I think Riley's kind of going through something with this move. I think she's not taking this well at all. Uh, they're just like, cool, living life, nothing, no worries until she like literally runs away. Uh, I just want to, I'm just curious. Do we, are we going to mark them down for that significantly? Are we on board? Mike, as a parent, do you feel like you could go that long without noticing how extremely bad your kid is? Cause she is really not taking to this move. Like she tries to run away. It is not good. Um, I just kind of, I wanted to mark, I wanted, I want to demerit them for that a little bit. I feel like they could have done better. Yeah, it's, you want my real answer or my fake answer? What's your, I, I want you, give me your real answer first and then give me your fake answer. Okay, yeah, so the real answer is like, obviously my kid's like two and a half. So, I don't know, man. It sure seems like uh, once they get bigger, they get more complicated and it's hard to know what they're That's feeling true. and deal That's with. That's true. Um, and the dad tries to reach out and she's not there to yeah. talk. So I get, you know, I, I get it. I get it. There is just like a ton even so far where there are just like these seasons of like high emotions where she'll just have the feelings. Right. And your yeah. job is just to kind of like sit with them and guide them through it. And, 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 and I could definitely see how after enough years of that kind of like volatility where it's just like, Oh, this is one of those, high emotional stretches as she's like figuring out yeah. this hard thing where you would just be kind of come of uh, not like absent, but you would just kind of shrug it off as that. Right. Especially with such a big yeah. thing that just happened. So I'm not like justifying it, but I can totally see it as you not realizing it, that it's Fair more, enough. it's more serious than this is just another, her processing through a hard thing as a kid. Right. Um, yeah. I could definitely see how that could slip through the cracks is what I'm trying to say. That being said, yeah, yeah I mean, I, ideally, yeah, they probably would have, you know, <laughs> said something. Uh, my joke answer is, "Hold them high for the world to see." But that's what that was my bane. So I'm that was done. that was that was um, I'm 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 disappointed, but also not surprised. So <laughs> there you go. yeah, Content- yeah, we we landed it. Uh, what what do you got? Joy betraying sadness is simply a Game of Thrones level betrayal. It is truly. I actually just. I, I wrote savage. Uh, I wrote top ten anime betrayals. Uh, we yeah, didn't quite dude. get to it, but it's Oof, tough. It's like when she's just like brutal. Oh, uh, sorry. I gotta make. What, I mean, she even says something like she has to be. We ha- Riley has to be happy. I have to save Riley or something like that. Yeah, it's actually a great moment storytelling wise and thematically. But yeah, it's brutal. It's it like is. it's like tough. Imagine having to see her uh, look her in the face again. Dang, fam. <laughs> she goes for it though. Yeah. Like a good friend. Um personal time, personal question time. When do you tear up in this movie? Cuz for me it's two, it's it's only two scenes, but both times I watched it both scenes kind of got me. Mm. Um Bing, Bing Bong's death yeah. is obvious, Every time. right? Like we're Every not, time. we don't have to that dispute that. We don't, we don't, yeah, we we that's just a given. You why did you mention it? But why did you bring that up? <laughs> I just want us to live in the space again, honestly. You already mentioned it, 
But when Riley has to be honest with, or is finally honest with her parents at the end, and the way that she says, "Yeah, I know you don't want me to," yes, but yes, and then she even, and then the second layer, you need me to be happy, but it's like that's brutal. Yes, if only because you think like you're just like the number. I mean, again, this might be a little too real, but I would say like for me, I was like, I so get that feel, yes. that moment of like feeling like you're letting someone down by not or by being unable to handle your emotions. Especially a parent. Oh, man. Especially a parent. Yeah, that's real. Ooh. That's real stuff. Like it's I said, tough. this, this so movie those gets two scenes childhood. Get yeah, it just gets it. Yeah. Um, definitely yeah. those two scenes traditionally. Like I said, this was a weird watch as a new parent because they're just like, yeah. there's, there's a lot of scenes about like your child forgetting the stuff that you as a parent like, and they don't ever show that from the parent's perspective. But like, yeah. you know, as Joy sorting through these forgotten memories of like um, laughing and playing as like a one or two year old, mm. you know, it's just it that it hits. It hits hard. And obviously yeah. Joy is experiencing the grief of like, oh, this is gone. So there's like a couple of the impermanence of childhood um, scenes in the movie that got me in a unique way that have never gotten me before. But generally speaking, those two are the ones that are just like, I'm dead. Yeah. It's just so, like, I, I, again, I didn't ask for this. Today. It's so yeah. that last one is so cathartic that you cry with her. Um, and like you said, yeah. it's so relatable. Bing bong is just like, it's utter cruelty. <laughs> it's cruel. Bing bong is just out of nowhere. <laughs> Why and, they- and, you know, I, I, I worry that we may not have said this at any point. It is a very good story moment. And the, yes. and the, the thematic resonance is extremely strong where it's like, yeah, you have to leave behind your childhood in order to develop complex emotions to deal with the world as you grow up. Yeah, we get it. Thank you. But do you need him to say, take her to the moon for me as he's fading away into nothingness? <gasps> like, do we, did we need that? I don't know. If we <laughs> That's a cry right the now. The answer is we, 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 we did obviously need it. Like when it he's going boring, up but... and he says, I have a feeling we're going to get there this time. And you're like, he's about yeah. to kill himself. <laughs> he's going to, he knows. I'm getting emotionally Anyways. worked up right now. Anyway. I know. I, I was going to say, it's tough talking about it. Okay. Um, yeah. What do you got? Can we talk about, again, dark underbelly of Pixar. How many imaginary yeah. boyfriends died in the making of this film? <laughs> and why don't we mourn their loss? Like we mourn Bing Boggs. Like, what does that reveal about us, John? Uh, you know, I think that, that disregard for like, like young people in general is, is just sort of how I feel about, uh, <laughs> life now now that i'm like now that you turn 30 it just becomes like like i kind of feel bad but i'm just like man those guys seem annoying i just i would have just disliked being around that person so it's like yeah i'm, I'm I, I feel kind of okay does does that i feel like is there, is there not a shot where they like disappear implying that like they weren't a real construct in the way the other I, am i, I am i just that I did my know. brain just make that <laughs> up and not that deal up. with the existential horror sometimes <laughs> Sometime around when you were old enough to start becoming a libertarian and you act like mm-hmm. that's what all people do naturally because you just don't <laughs> want to admit that like you pay taxes and you're upset about it. Um, you don't yeah. like poor people yeah. anymore. Um, yeah. You're too jaded to <laughs> care. Around that time, your brain also created the construct that those uh, boyfriends weren't real people. So, Yeah, same thing. Same part of life. Good times. Good times. Yeah, no, I, I did, didn't didn't sweat that one, honestly. Just, just like, yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But you know what? They were willing to die for her. So that's, that's true. I think that's yeah. At that's least a, she wants a guy who's gonna who's gonna you know stay, die for her. Apparently, if 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 her in, inward conception is to be believed. 
Um, this is my last one. Did you ever try to run run away from home? Oh, I I don't think so. I can't remember any. Like there are no big stories of that. Right. Yeah. I'm sure there Just were curious. like times where I like went to the end of our neighborhood and was like I'm running away, you know. But it wasn't like a yeah. buy a bus ticket and actually try to leave. It was like pouting. I remember really thinking about it one time. Sure. I'm sure I, I thought about it a lot. Middle, yeah. When I, when I was in like I think fifth or sixth grade. Like, being really stoked to run away from home. I forget what I was mad about. It was probably some really stupid thing. Um, and then, like, very quickly, I think my, my you know, I, I don't know if joy is, is the loudest voice of my internal emotions. I think fear has, has a much more prominent role in my internal narrative. And so I think uh, fear probably put a stop to that yeah, one pretty yeah, quick. Yeah, It was just like, wait a second. How are we doing X, Y, Z? And it was like, oh, we, we can't. We're not. We're not doing any of those things. We're not. We're not stealing money to buy a bus ticket. We're not biking across the country. We're not. Yeah, yeah we can't. That's we can't about when this. I stopped uh, buying or being in the punk scene too. Where I was like, "Ooh, I don't actually want to do any of this." <laughs> like living yeah, in vans like, and oh, stuff. Uh, I was like, "Hey, yikes!" Um, I got uh, that's two it for me. Two quick ones. I don't know how this got. Yeah. Oh, I stole one of yours. That's right. Okay. So, uh, yeah. real quick. One, let's just talk about how the bus driver actually stops and just lets a child off of his bus without asking her any questions. That was well, pretty cool. Let's talk about because it, I, I at some point in the course of the movie, I believed that Riley was like fourteen or fifteen, and at the end they say she's about to turn twelve. Yeah, I think. they sold her a so bus ticket. Yeah, an eleven-year-old can just buy a bus ticket and just get on a bus. Is that true? I just don't know. Is that real? Can that happen? I just, I just, I feel like someone would have had a question. I'm sending Audie to the bus station today to find out. (laughs) Go buy a bus ticket. Report what happens. Um, You're just standing outside, like giving her a thumbs up. The driver or the the (sighs) ticket salesman is just looking at you, looking at her like, what is going on here? Yeah. I I don't get that at all. Yeah. 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 And then my last one is simply this. And the after credits scene. It is revealed that Pete Doctor has an incredibly low opinion of the internal world of cats. How did that? Sit I did with notice you? that. How did that? Sit uh, with disagreed. You? Okay. Disagreed. Just- I, I thought that his take on, I, I thought it was it was bias. I thought it was <laughs> it was sort of, uh, you know, it, it was just, uh, you know, we talked earlier in the movie about the way facts and opinions get mixed up. I, I would humbly submit to Mister Doctor. <laughs> that he needs to reevaluate some of his opinions on uh, cats, cats v dogs, because we all know cats have a richer internal life than than dogs do. I'm just gonna say it. Uh, so yeah, disagree. He's wrong. There you, know you what? go. It's what holds this movie back. Uh, is that it? Did we do it? Yep, that's it. All right. Well, uh, stick around after the break. We're gonna dive into some essays, Mike and I. Welcome back. Um, in this part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared an essay that kind of dives deeper into some aspect of the movie or maybe just some topic that we thought of while watching the movie. Uh, Mike, I think you're going to go first, if that's okay. That is correct. Okay, take it away. Psychology has long held that from our earliest years, we are wired as human beings to create predictive patterns of stimuli and response. 
It goes like this. A new stimuli shakes us. Usually it's something that was unexpected or a stimuli that we've never experienced before. And then we respond with a specific emotion or behavior. And ultimately, if that response is proven to be successful, if it gets us what we wanted, an outcome that we desired, our brains instinctually begin pattern formation, embedding that response as the right way to respond to a stimuli or one similar to it moving forward. We actually literally begin to create new neural pathways for it and turning to that pathway easier and easier as we practice that stimuli and response over and over and over again. Essentially, that becomes our instinctual response when confronted by any similar stimuli again. And it's obvious why. The first time we tried it out, well, obviously it worked. It got us what we wanted. And I can watch this in real time with my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. You'll watch as she experiences a new stimuli, and then she begins trying out emotional responses, anger, sadness, disgust, fear, or happiness. And ultimately, she'll get to one that works. There'll be a moment where an emotional response to a stimuli successfully produces her desired outcome. And you'll just almost see in real time her brain begin creating the pathway and the pattern pretty much immediately. It becomes entrenched and begins directing her behavior almost right after it succeeds the first time. For example, a stimuli will scare her, so she'll seek out comfort by running to mommy, which works. And then suddenly, before we know it, that becomes her only response to anything that scares her. Or she'll get hurt, and she'll distance herself from the source of the pain. She'll feel that pain reside, and then she'll avoid whatever that thing was entirely moving forward, which is often good, you know, because it's like a stove or something. But at times, this can be quite ridiculous. For example, I remember the first time she got shocked by a, a static electricity on a slide, and she wouldn't go near slides for weeks, even though she loves them. It had become a stimuli response pattern so quickly. Or my least favorite example, one that most parents know, that time when we responded to an angry tantrum over her not getting exactly what she wanted when she wanted it by giving into it. Just one time we gave into the tantrum and before we knew it, she had started throwing tantrums every single time she didn't get exactly what she wanted when she wanted it moving forward. That took weeks for us to get to deprogram. New stimuli, response, success, pattern formation. This forms what ultimately becomes our earliest internal world. And it's so obvious when you say it out loud, right? Joy let me feel good. Anger prevented hurt. Fear avoided danger. Disgust got the broccoli away. Sadness brought comfort. These worked at some point in our lives and just simply became our emotional pathways for navigating life. It's simple. It's effective. It's so human. And inside-out storytelling and metaphorical elements are just so effective at capturing this process of emotional formation. We've talked about it a ton on this podcast so far. It effortlessly depicts how Riley's earliest moments, memories, environments, relationships, and experiences form the internal emotional world of the kid that we meet to start the movie. How she developed emotional patterns and personality islands through her earliest memories of home, play, success, failure, family, friendship, 
which end up determining how and when her core emotions fire, how they are deployed and ultimately directed, creating the person who's hardwired, seemingly, to keep joy in the captain's chair of how she navigates and feels through her world. And it's also equally effective in capturing this struggle that awaits us all when these simple emotional patterns and pathways begin to fail. When what brought early success in our childhood inevitably gets confronted and proven inadequate for navigating our infinitely more complex experiences as part of growing up. How trauma, wounds, and loss produce complex emotions in places, ways, and levels we've just never had to deal with or process before. Proving our old emotional maps truly incapable of navigating new realities. For example, when Riley's dad goes to work instead of staying with Riley at the new house, and her emotional framework can only seem to interpret that choice sadly as dad just left us. Abandonment. She's just incapable of classifying or processing this new emotion of loss and separation in a nuanced way. And it's even more heartbreaking when you see Joy blurt out, let's get pizza as if that's gonna solve this new emotional experience. She tries to go to something that used to work in sadness, but now can't bring resolution because the simple pattern just doesn't work anymore. It's this moment we all face where Riley's childhood pathways give way under increasingly complex experiences of paradox, suffering, and change. And Inside Out, is so successful in imaginatively conveying the painful results of this process. Her personality islands start to crumble and fall. Her core memories become unstable and altered. Riley's thoughts and her train of thought literally goes off the rails. Anger, fear, and disgust take control when situations don't call for them at all, and her responses to present stimuli become increasingly self-destructive as her old patterns fail to produce a salve for her new, more complex experiences of pain. She begins telling herself delusions like happy memories were in Minnesota, so I must run away to Minnesota to be happy again. Or I should steal from mom and dad because they got me into this mess even though that was something she never would have even considered doing before. It's a perfect visualization of the internal struggle that accompanies the transition from childhood to adulthood. When our simple childhood feelings simply cannot encapsulate our wildly complex human experiences anymore. And it's so relatable. But I also love about Inside Out is that it points towards what healthy emotional maturation looks like. Riley's emotional world gets stabilized again when Joy accepts that sadness belongs in Riley's healthy experience of life just as much as Joy does. When, through surrender, sadness is allowed to touch her past joyful memories, a moment where Riley finally allows herself to feel complex emotions, to accept, name, feel, and process through her complex pain. She's finally able to let sadness take control for a moment because that's simply what's appropriate in that moment. Riley stops classifying her emotions as simple categories like acceptable, unacceptable, good, bad. She stops determining them 
to fall into these categories simply by whether she wants to feel them or not, simply by whether they feel good or not. She begins to recognize that every emotion belongs and plays a necessary role in navigating a world that is often simultaneously joyful, painful, fearful, disgusting, infuriating, and beautiful all at the same time. And ultimately, Inside Out invites us to tangibly see the outcome, a more nuanced emotional experience of past and present, where Riley can feel joyous to have had an experience and sad that it's ended at the same time, without either canceling the other out. An emotional maturity where every emotion operates together, determining which is necessary in a given moment, rather than relying on just one simple emotion that's based on a past experience that has nothing to do with a present stimuli. Emotional health, one not defined by only feeling what she wants to, but by feeling the appropriate emotion at the appropriate level for the appropriate amount of time based on what she's currently experiencing. An emotional control booth that can respond and navigate the complexities of life and through that build more islands of personality that are full of experiences that can be mixed together and processed through in the same hand. That's emotional formation and maturity, somehow depicted in a silly kid's cartoon. And it's one of the reasons I just love this movie. But also, as I sat with it on this rewatch, I couldn't help but imagine a world where Riley never found the pathway for processing her emotions in a healthy way, where she never got the support, love, or help she needed to deconstruct and reconstruct these patterns. A world where she remained the same person and her emotions remained entrenched and were fed well into her adulthood instead of changing. And what's funny is that I realized that's a world that I have found myself in quite often, one of emotional immaturity where I'm directed by past emotional maps and patterns because I never let myself identify and deconstruct my wounds, my maps, my old cycles, my old pathways. Richard Rohr calls these little soldiers, emotional patterns that we as children created and trained to protect us in times that felt like war, set pathways of stimuli and successful response that we created to keep us safe, to protect us as we experience new hurts, fears, pains, and dangers as children. Little soldiers that worked, but also little soldiers that once employed don't know how to retire on their own. Little soldiers that don't know the difference between war and peace. Little soldiers that were created and trained for one purpose, to identify danger, shoot, and protect. Little soldiers that despite years passing will always come out firing when anything comes along that feels like that old danger they were created to fight against, whether it's warranted by the present or not. Little soldiers that if we never identify and decommission will make a mess of our lives. For me, two came to mind. I learned to handle fear through distraction, humor, making people laugh, or through anger, getting intense, scaring, becoming big, ultimately imposing control through a sense of threateningness, both of which worked great as a kid with simple fears. 
but when it came to the complex fears of my adulthood, fears of, from depression, abandonment, rejection, well, these little soldiers proved utterly self-destructive. The little soldier named Humor tried to protect me when depression came, but now as an adult, it just made me hide when I needed to be seen. The little soldier anger came out swinging whenever I felt like I was in danger of abandonment, insecurity, or loss. But ultimately, that was a past story playing out in a present relationship to the hurt and confusion of the loved one in front of me. And that broke a lot of relationships. And in this, Inside Out points to the path forward, to truly grow and transition into a healthy adult human being we must identify these little soldiers, these emotional patterns. And as Roar urges us, thank them for getting us through so much before decommissioning them permanently, deconstructing them so we can reconstruct an emotional world on the other side that is capable of holding the complexity and paradox of a much bigger life. Ultimately, an emotional world that can handle the beautiful times of peace that can live in the present and not the past. Emotional reflection, deconstruction, reconstruction, not denying any part of our emotional experience, but rather embracing it all, recognizing it all belongs, so long as it appears in the appropriate level, time, and place. Learning to live within everything this life has to offer, but in a healthy way where we live from the inside out. Hey, that's the name of the movie. Yay! Mike. I did it! Mike, did you did you know that? Do they say inside they sh- out in this movie? I don't know. I hope not. I don't think they do. It's kind of a lost, uh, kind of a lost opportunity, if you ask I me. I actually think it's probably the best decision they made. It's so <laughs> nope. obvious. <laughs> nope, nope. Pete, doctor's wrong on that one. Oh. Uh, no, I, I love that. I, I uh, obviously totally agree. Mike and I have talked about these themes probably now, what like eighty years times at this point. Like, 80, yeah, too too many times, frankly. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I actually had a couple couple things come up. If it's okay, I can yeah, shoot. Um, just, you know, th- this first one will seem a little tangential, but, but talking about that way that you develop these responses, right. As, as your kid, I'm so intrigued by that idea mm. and, uh, it's a weird relation. Um, but actually what I was thinking of is we were watching, this is a little odd, but we were watching as a group planet earth a few nights ago. Ooh, um, love planet earth. And, uh, we were watching there, there was like a bird, like a dancing bird species that was insane. It has like this multi-hour, I think this was planet earth. It could have been. Yeah. Uh, I know you're talking about. Doc, nature, doc, yeah. Nature. I know you're talking about. Yeah. The, this yeah, bird that had like four, a four hour dance it has to do in order to attract a mate. Right. And someone asked, someone in the room said, why would they have evolved that? Why would that be what evolution would have created? And I pointed out, but then I, I, I sort of have to think through it. I was like, well, I mean, you know, evolution does not produce like the most efficient or yeah, the best yeah. version one of, the, of something. One of the it biggest just, misunderstandings. Yeah, yes. No, go on. One of the biggest misunderstandings of evolution, yeah, is that it it doesn't produce the best or most efficient result. 
just the result that feels fills the niche and works well enough, literally. Yeah. And usually there's enough competition that the result happens to be a very efficient sort yeah. of thing, but not like the best thing. Like it's not being, you know, and you're right. It's a big misconception because people will look at be like, well, that thing doesn't make sense to have evolved. It's like, yeah, exactly. Cause it's just, it's just ramshackle. It's just what in worked. a weird way to me. Yeah. The, and, and that to me connects directly to the way that we go about developing those emotional responses. Right. It's not, we get stuck in a way, I think often, if you don't work, go through the work of developing, um, of developing, you know, your, your own understanding of your internal world, you get stuck in that first iteration of what kind of worked or what worked well enough for you to survive. Mm. But it's not actually the best or most efficient way of going about, you know, dealing with this specific problem. And I mean, there's obviously other sides to it where it's like, also there's a fear of, 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 not jumping out or there's just not knowing that there's other ways to approach things or whatever. And you address how it's like so much of that journey is, you know, deconstructing those things or whatever. But just to speak to that a little bit, I think it, it's, it so makes sense, but it's also, um, it's also something that's like, well, this is why it's important to talk about and consider those things because otherwise, if you don't think about it and examine those in your life, you just get stuck in those first responses mm -hmm. and possibly never even realizing there are any other responses. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I was just really, it's, it's intriguing to me how similar those two, those two concepts are though, that you only develop enough to get by on yeah. your own, uh, generally. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's kind of weird cause it's, it's like the paradox of uh, ego formation is like mm. an ideal childhood is that you have a whole bunch of repetitive, simple experiences that teach you very clear patterns of like how to stay safe and how to navigate the world. Right. Um, that means you are in a healthy, safe home in a lot of ways. Right. Um, yeah. I repeatedly learned not to touch the stove because that was the biggest danger that was around in my childhood. And then in a weird way, what I'm trying to get at is like the healthier, the healthier of a childhood that you had with like strong boundaries that were very clear and created these very clear patterns, the more you're going to have to deconstruct later in life. Um, because ultimately you're going to have to go into a more complex world and you actually probably had more, more simple formulas and you had more <laughs> repetition of the same formula because it was very mm. consistent. You know what I mean? And there's something really, in I think there's just like something really fascinating about that where it's like, in some ways, now, to be clear, instability in your childhood means you don't create ego. You never get any, like, of these kind of boundaries that are good. And that creates a whole host of worse problems. So I'm not advocating of, like, putting your children in danger to help them navigate their complex world better later in life. But it is so interesting because, like, it is funny that there is just, like, more deconstruction that has to take place because you learned good formulas early so well you know what i mean does that make sense um absolutely and i think that's that's always been a funny part because it's like i remember when i started counseling and stuff i you feel so bad being critical of your parents or being critical of your yeah. upbringing because you had it good you weren't abused you weren't like destitute and it's it was so weird coming around to being like well no my parents made a mistake because they're imperfect so that's one whole thing that's a different conversation but even more than that um, 
because of those good things, a lot of my baggage comes from I've never had to confront these core formulas and these core mm. equations yeah. that I, I have been trying to use to navigate my world that do not work anymore, right? Yeah. Um, and I just think that's fascinating. I don't know. There's something really interesting about that. I'm kind of on a tangent at this point. but Yeah, I know. I'm, yeah. I'm totally there for all of that. I think it's – this is also possibly a little tangential, but I – you know, I think about one of my favorite lines just on this topic of like the the way that you form these crazy ways, not crazy, but but these ways of responding to, to stimuli, especially as a kid that's like just so basic and so one plus one equals two. Mm. And I, I one of my favorite lines in the movie, it's a comedic line, but, but I think it actually says something interesting is when anger, when, when anger, fear and disgust are trying to figure out what to do and anger says, we were happy in Minnesota. Now we're not. And so we should go back to Minnesota. Yeah. And it, it's not that, it's not that exact line, but, and it's played a little bit for laughs, but it's also like, to me, I remember hearing and thinking that is kind of how your That's internal it. brain works. That is that it. Is like, yeah. It just goes as far as that. I was just thinking, especially as a kid, you're just like, well, A plus B equals C. If this is true, then that's true. And therefore I'm good. And it's like, well, no, but Again, it's 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 relatable when you think about childhood, but I I, I want to I keep coming back to this point. I do think it's also relatable as an adult as well. Often that is how far our internal world goes, right? Yep. Like I you'll think that. like like one of my journeys lately has been learning. You know, I get stuck in oh well in those circumstances things were good. So if I can only repeat those circumstances, I will be happy. And it's like well, oh wait, and that's a you know, that's exactly the same thing. I dress it up more, obviously. It becomes like, sure. oh, well, I need to to have this level of income or this number of friends or this amount of social activities. But ultimately, that's saying the same thing, right? It's like, if my external world can look like this, then everything's going to be fine because that's what I remember at one point. And it's like, yeah, but that's just not how it works, champ, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, but but just in those terms where it's like you, you set up that's that stimuli response thing and as much as it can help you in certain ways, at a certain point, it reaches its limitation. And then it leads you to that kind of backwards, like logic, right? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's, you know, I have nothing else to add other than just like to repeat. It's critical to understand as you like begin doing that work. Um, and it's something mm. I love that Richard Rohr says is he's like, you cannot release these things until you think them. And yeah. that's critical because the reason that it's ingrained is because it helped you, right? Yeah. And it's not just surgery. It's not just cutting off our limbs and being like, oh, don't need arms anymore. It's a matter of like, I need to replace this because it's no longer effective. But right. to make that a healthy process, there has to come a point where you say, thank you for keeping me alive, for getting me through X trauma, for keeping me safe when my life was uncertain, right? And that's just mm -hmm. valuable. Yeah. I just think that's a critical point to the process. To be honest with you, only very recently in life have I begun to develop the ability to talk about emotions without becoming distinctly uncomfortable. In a way, I think of that as the most cliche sort of masculine thing about me, 
there's a cultural understanding of guys as not being in touch with their emotions. And that's a niche that I admit I sort of slide into pretty well. On the one hand, I get why this happened internally. I'm not someone who much likes conflict, and often I find that I'm driven mostly by fear. And by definition, talking about emotions is an act of vulnerability that will often lead directly to conflict with others. I would think that most people at least once have had that intensely upsetting experience of their emotional state not being taken seriously by others. For me, I think there's a core memory somewhere which explicitly keeps that possibility at the forefront of my mind. I'm always bracing for that rebuff, that dismissal of my genuine emotional state. On the other hand, I think part of why emotions are so hard to talk about is because the culture I grew up in did everything it could to prevent me from being able to talk about them. Again, it may be cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. The overwhelming response when I was growing up to any statement of, I'm feeling bad about this, I'm upset about this, I'm sad about this, I'm angry about this, was you should tough it out, you should suck it up, you should be strong. It's that last one that I think about the most, be strong. Because that's the paradigm I think I've spent so much of my life unlearning, the equating of strength with controlling emotions. The way it's supposed to go, according to this worldview, is that everyone has a range of emotions and weak people without willpower are pushed around by their emotions and driven by their emotions to do stupid or bad things. Good people, according to this paradigm, are strong and use their immense willpower to force their emotions into submission. These people are apparently capable of willing themselves into positive feelings, of subduing or even eliminating sadness and fear and anger out of their emotional lives. These people don't bother others by being upset or angry or creating conflict. And the result is that we create people who spend their lives at war with themselves, who frame their own lives as a battle they are always losing because they can't wrestle away control of their own emotions. They look around and perceive other people as being calm, cool, and collected, as always making the right decisions and never giving into emotional impulses or negative feelings. And the shame over one's inability to be emotionally steady snowballs and becomes a core part of their identity, a secret in their soul that they pray no one around them will ever get to see. I know this because I have been that person. Or, oh wait, okay, here we go. I know this because I am that person. Or at least I have been that person for a long period of time. You'll never hear me say this again, but in a sense, I regret not taking Mike's advice much earlier and seeing this movie years ago. I don't want to imply that my entire life would have changed and my relationship with myself and my emotions would have been cured overnight. That's dishonest to the journey I've been on and it disregards my friends and my family and even professionals that have poured love and understanding and have listened to me. But having said that, the thing about Inside Out that I get most excited about, the thing that I think this film does that almost no other piece of media I can think of even approaches, is that it addresses the core struggle of how we as emotional humans understand and frame ourselves. It's well known that Pixar movies are designed to be equally appealing to adults as well as children. We've talked about that a lot on the show. But where for most of their movies that just translates to sneaking in some innuendos and jokes that go over a kid's head, with Inside Out, 
I think the main ambition was to provide virtually the same lesson in a manner that resonates with multiple age groups. I can't speak to how a kid would be affected by this, but for my part, the model here is something really powerful because even if it's cliche, the message is so simple and powerful and universal. To live a fulfilling life, you have to start by accepting all of who you are. The most important character arc in the movie is shared by Riley and Joy, who in a sense I think kind of stand in for each other, and their relationship with Sadness, who also sort of stands in for the other emotions in the movie. At the beginning of the movie, the core of Riley, the core of her identity and personality and relationships are all of her joyful memories. Joy, and by extension Riley, outright rejects the intrusion of sadness on her core identity, actively forcing out her influence. By the end of the movie, the journey of the characters has been in order to recognize that Riley's sad, angry, disgusted, fearful, and joyful memories are all a part of her identity and all influence who she is. And while that whole paragraph may elicit a response of like, duh, Obviously, that's what the movie is about. I find it worth repeating to myself because the core of that lesson is still subtly revolutionary. Imagine a culture where, from our earliest ages, it is reinforced over and over and over again that there is no experience in your past that does not form a part of your identity. The sad, angry, joyful memories all equally impact who you are. And rather than fight those memories, rather than run from yourself, there is a tremendous freedom in being able to accept those seemingly disparate experiences and emotions as what makes you, you. Now, just to be clear, I understand that there are people with intense, real trauma. And in a sense, I'm not qualified to talk about that. And I don't want to do any disrespect to their journeys. But I think for most people, this is sort of the paradigm that we end up falling into, of having to fight to accept that every part of our experience is something that does actually define us. I know this is a little more conversational than our essays usually go, but I felt compelled to mention all of this because it's so integral to the journey I've been on over the past few years. And on the off chance that anyone listening resonated with those ideas or that sense of being prohibited from being emotionally vulnerable, I would say it may be worth watching Inside Out with these concepts in mind or just talking to someone, a friend or a professional about this. I'm encouraged that increasingly, culture in some ways seems to be changing to embrace these kinds of ideas, but I also would guess that a lot of people are still trapped in themselves, still don't know that they might be missing one of the most important journeys they can go on in life. And if a Pixar movie about a little girl processing a cross-country move can start that dialogue, can begin that conversation, I count it as a remarkable achievement. Maybe I will end up proselytizing Pete Doctor's masterpiece as often as Mike does. Adrian! Adrian, I did it! <laughs> I did it. You know, uh, the worst part is I didn't, I didn't remember when you asked me that as a stray thought that this was in my essay. So I, I, it's like I, I played myself. I am the me. <laughs> you played yourself, John. 
You played yourself. I'm so mad. I, I rescind. I, I I rescind that bit. I, it's I, too I late. Don't, it's too if late. If I go back, I think. What did I actually say? I think no I said take backsies. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love that. I think that's it's obviously we talk about recovery way too much, and that's because you know I'm in recovery, so it's a big part of my life. Um, and I know you've done a lot of the spiritual kind of conversations on recovery work. So, but one of the things that I, I always love that they remind you of is that whatever you resist persists. And yeah, at first I thought that was lunacy, right? It's like, well, no, what I resist is what I want to stop. But I think what they're trying to get at is those kind of emotional patterns that you've buried that you're talking about, where it's like, there is this moment in which in the act of trying to push all that down to deny that part of ourself, that part of our experience, that part of our pain, that trauma, whatever that pattern, it's just going to, it's like your trauma will find a way to speak. Either you can yeah. speak it or it's going to find a way to speak elsewhere. And it's almost yeah. always going to come out of things that you don't understand. It's going to be displayed in ways that other people don't understand. I mean, that's a, that kind of connects back to my monologue. That was a huge part of me is I would just like get mad and really I'm afraid, but fear is that thing that as a man, I was taught over and over and over again, don't be afraid. You can't be afraid. Like that's not what manhood is about. Right. So yeah. I'm just like displacing fear through anger and imagine being like the girlfriend of someone who anytime they get afraid just gets wildly angry. And you're like, yeah. I don't know what's going on right now. And that's that that shatters relationships. And it also shatters your sense of self because suddenly you don't feel at home or like you have any sense of why you are the way you are, why you do what you do. And it's so wild that like the healing of that comes from just simply accepting myself as I am, including all of the past that came into making me who I am. Right. There's just this moment in which I stop resisting it and I accept it that in a weird way, obviously there's a whole lot of work and therapy and deconstruction and all that stuff that comes with it. But in a weird way, it stops persisting with that moment mm. at which I stop resisting. Does that make sense? Like, I think you're just, yeah. I, I think that's what you, one of the things you're getting. I think that's just like spot on. There's this like wild, just accept that it all belongs. And suddenly yeah. half the work is done in a crazy way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, it's, I so love, I mean, this is a pretty common phrase, but this is why I really love that phrase. What are you, you know, what are you letting live rent free in your head? Mm, yes. And it gets to the idea to me because it's basically saying like, you know, if you're spending all of your time or if, if you're just consumed inwardly with trying to negate early experiences you had of just being like, I do not want to experience that again. I do not. That is not. Any that does not factor into who I am or the way I act or anything like that, like you're just letting that thing consume you. I already said the word consume, but you're just letting that thing eat you up from inside. And yeah. it will just keep doing that until you make peace with it, until you reach that place of, you know, oh, I, I can accept that this is something that is just part of me. And it's so counterintuitive. And that's what, why spirituality is so fascinating to me, because it is so counterintuitive. Like in no way do you, would you imagine that, you know, in, in, you know, one example, people, which there, there are some legitimate things that grievances people have with Alcoholics Anonymous. So we don't have to get too much into that. Um, But, you know, I've heard people in the past be like, you know, how come they make, they, they make you say like so often, like I am an alcoholic. That's a huge part of the program is that at no Mm -hmm. point are you not an alcoholic. 
And I think on the from the outside, it seems, again, counterintuitive. It's like, wait a second, we're, aren't we here to get past that? And why are we why are we letting these people reinforce themselves over and over again that they're an alcoholic? And I think I mean you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but I'm pretty sure that like the theory behind that is again you have to just accept that this is part of who you are. If you try to just deny that that's true of you, that's when it can gain control over you. That's when yeah. you know those ex- those experiences or, or that the, I guess I just said it. That's when that can gain, gain control of you. But by in a sense, accepting it of just being like, Hey, it is just true of me. Then you always have the upper hand on it. It doesn't sneak up on you in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, there's a whole process through which you come to terms with that. That's built into 12 steps. And, and kind of, I only say that cause I feel the same way about therapy where it's like accepting it is a huge part, but then you're also going to have to like get some therapy and deconstruct some wounds and yeah. traumas and whatever. So I don't want to make it sound like it's as easy as being like, just name it. And it goes away. Um, yeah. But the the core of what you're saying is absolutely true, where there's just this this moment in which by and I think this is what's so strange about it. We so desperately don't want to be like the outsider. We don't want to be different than everyone else. Right. And the core thing that keeps having people relapse with alcoholism and drug addiction is, well, other people can use this and they're fine. And ultimately, that quickly leads to. So maybe I can, too. Right. And that's mm-hmm. why an addictive person with like an, an addictive personality, addictive gene keeps relapsing is because they, they get far enough away from the pain of where this substance led them when it got bad last time enough to forget. And then they start seeing other people using it and they say, well, why can't I? And ultimately that's just a lack of acceptance. I know from my history, my personal history, my experiences, if I accept my life for all that it's been, I know that every time I have started down this path. It goes to the same place, which shows me that I am just simply not like those other people. And that's fine. Right. If I can just accept that that's not a problem, that it's just, Hey, this just isn't something that I can use in the same way as other people because of whatever complex system of genes and brain chemistry and whatever else, if I can just accept that, then suddenly the, the, the thing that's driving me to do that, which is simply a weird comparison game. I'm playing with other people. It begins to fade and I could just accept that my life is better without it. And the temptation Mm. fades and the behavioral patterns begin to change. You know what I mean? Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we do actually have a final question Mike and I have each prepared for each other. Before that, though, I want to let you know on the next episode, we are going to be talking about my boy, James Cameron, and yeah. his 1989 masterpiece, The Abyss. This is the second camera movie we've done, right? After The Terminator. We're kind yeah. of going... We're kind of going... In, oh, no, we're not going in order. We skipped Aliens. Well, whatever. We're, we're, we're sticking in the 80s anyways. Uh, the abyss if you haven't seen it watch it Uh, if you think to watch it between now and then Mike and I were just discussing try to watch the extended version we're going to talk about this on the episode but there's a theatrical cut that cuts out really really important plot points Um, and there's an extended version that keeps them in and makes the movie comprehensible 
Uh, also, if you get a chance, there's an, a, there's a making of documentary on YouTube that's seriously one of the best things I've ever seen because this movie was a nightmare to make. Yeah. Uh, so I'm stoked. Yeah. Um, but before that, we have to end this episode with a final question. Uh, Mike, I've kind of been on a theme lately, and I'm just going to stick with it. I've, I'm feeling good about this. So okay. we're going to run it back a little bit from the last few weeks. For one full year, you have to hear the running monologue of one of the personified emotions in oh, your no. head. Which one do you pick? See, and you didn't give me an or statement, so I wasn't able to wiggle out I of it. I didn't give um, Yeah, there's you you can't wiggle out of it. It's just gonna happen. But if you between those five, joy, fear, anger, disgust, uh, or sadness, it's just all of their commentary on whatever ha- whatever is happening in your life. It's hard because like anger and fear are just like always there anyways. <laughs> yeah, you're like I don't need I don't need that. Yeah. Okay. Honestly, okay. I'm going to I'm going to be I'm going to go against what you expect. I have a two and a half year old daughter and I think Mike in constant joy mode would be a blast for her. So for her sake I think joy's a great answer. Right? I'm going to pick yeah, joy. I'm, I'm yeah. I'm going to pick joy. I think the only thing with joy is like imagine that every single situation you're in an internal voice is pointing out the silver lining. Oh yeah. There's a moment where that would get that get, you'd be like, I hate this. I need you to understand how self-sacrificial this is of me to pick. (laughs) I would hate it. I hate it. It sounds awful, but the people around me would probably be pretty grateful for it. So (sighs) my answer for what it's worth would be anger just because I don't, you know, just get, just getting real with this. I am not very in touch with my sense of anger. Uh, shout out to the type nines out there represent. Um, and it'd be, it'd be kind of fun to like have a, in a way like John Mulaney has a bit where he talks about like having a partner point out obvious things he should be upset about in his life. And it's like, that's kind of what I feel like I want is some like an editorial voice to be like, they shouldn't treat you that way. And I'd be like, yeah, wait a second. Is that not the role I, I played in your life when we lived in the same that, city? You know what? You more than once that, that is, that, that is true. That is accurate. Of like Mike and I would have meetings, especially when we work, had worked in the same place where he'd be like, they shouldn't say that or they shouldn't do that to you. And I'm like, yeah, they shouldn't. I would, and I would just suck. I would just be like, yeah, I don't know. I guess that makes sense. You know? Uh, but yeah, that that that's the obvious answer. Uh, Joy, I would go crazy. I would yeah. literally go insane. It would, it would just be a nightmare. Uh, yeah, good times. Uh, what if, you got? Um, <laughs> where would I exist in your little memory world, and how would I be personified in the vision <laughs> of Inside Out? I, I I'm gonna steal your own joke from you because I just really like the idea that you're an imagination. That I have my own. <laughs> internal and like i think the way it works is i have my own internal version of mike overstreet <laughs> that just like that's just that anger. i get to just it's just but, lewis black <laughs> but it's just michael lewis black what i will say though is the internal version of of my mike like i beat you in every argument we have and that's sure. part of yeah that's 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 the best part about it yeah is i can just kind of play it out and then i'm like but he says something stupid and then i'm like huh I got you. And it's like, I win. And Mike's like, you see, oh, you're so much smarter than me. My answer that's, is... I think that's how it plays out. My answer is almost identical, but with a different personification. So you would be yeah. my imaginary perfect boyfriend figure, 
Okay. But you would just okay. be like yeah. a drooling idiot version of yourself. <laughs> it would just constantly be like, you're so right, Mike. You're amazing. I That's tough. James Cameron That's tough. does suck. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, thanks, John. So glad you're you would, here. You would dip to that level of blasphemy of having, I at least give you the arguments you care about in my, in my oh, fake world. Oh, no, you would be like totally subservient to my worldview. This is, this is be, I'm, I'm, I'm mad. Is this what anger feels like? <laughs> John, we did John, it. As your anger it. guide, you should be angry, right? Yeah, I should be angry. Okay, good to know. See, this is what I need. I need that internal voice. It's good to know this podcast has done something good. That I've, I've, I've gone on a journey and I'm in touch with my anger now. That's where we arrived. <laughs> That's why I'm here, baby. Uh, Mike, any closing thoughts on Inside Out? Bing bong, 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 Thank you all for listening. I apologize sincerely. Uh, we'll, we'll see you guys on the next episode. I'm Jonathan Devine. I'm Mike Everstreet. Big bug. Yeah, thank you for listening. They call me Mike. I ride a bike down the turnpike. I don't hitchhike.